Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? You know what the worst part about drinking too much atomic alcohol is? What's that, Tim? The hangover pressure shockwave that hits you the next day. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way popular culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Timothy Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. But today, I draw on one of my other particular set of skills, homebrewing, winemaking, and wondering why there are so many beers, wine, and cocktails with nuclear imagery, themes, and of course, pun names. I've assembled a crack shot team today to help us delve into the great mystery. The crew today is a good mix of nuclear experts and beverage connoisseurs. First up, my fellow podcast host and homebrewer, Gabe. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Good. Welcome back. I know you've been uh, traveling throughout the summer, but I'm glad that we were able to get you back for this great occasion. Yeah, no, there was no way I was going to miss uh, getting drunk on air on this podcast, so thank you. Terrific. All right, so next up, we have Will Satron, Research Associate at the Institute for China-American Studies. Will, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Timothy. Excellent. I know we've been talking about doing this episode over Twitter for quite a long time. I'm glad today we're finally able to get it going. And then the next host we have here is my friend Eric Gasho, another home brewer and a friend of mine from college. Uh, so we appreciate his insights on the podcast today. Thanks, Tim. Longtime listener, first time uh, uh, co-host. Happy to be here. Let's get drunk. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, so the goal today is going to be discussing... 10 examples I've collected of beer, wine, and cocktails that have what I think are nuclear themes. Some of them are named after nuclear puns. Uh, some of them are fermented to draw attention to a specific point in nuclear history. And uh, there may have been some beverages that try to shed their unwanted connections to all things nuclear. Uh, we'll intersperse the drinks discussions with some interesting stories, like how there was once a study by British scientists during the early part of the Cold War that argued that having alcohol in your system would reduce the effects of radiation uh, on your body, so pub business started to pick up. Uh, those are just some of the kind of interesting tidbits you'll hear uh, throughout the course of our episode. Part of the fun will be to see how long we can keep up the podcast without getting too sloppy. I think we're all professionals here. I think we can handle it. Uh, I've also have clips of some interviews that I've done over the phone with the brewmaster and the artist uh, behind one of the beers that we're going to talk about today, the Atomic Child, which was brewed by Forbidden Root in Chicago and in collaboration with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. Uh, feel free to drink along if you want, whether you have a nuclear beer on hand, a regular old PBR, or just a tall glass of iced tea, Arnold Palmer, whatever is your favorite poison. Uh, and because we like to get super critical here, I have prepared some scorecards for my panel of experts to rate the beverages by asking three important questions. First, how much did you enjoy the beer? How much did you enjoy the wine? What was the taste like? On a scale of one to five, one being, I'll never drink this again, five being, this is great, I'm putting this in my fridge tonight. Two, how well does it appropriate nuclear themes? Same thing on a one to five scale. Does this do a pretty good job of doing what it was trying to do in terms of appropriating whatever the nuclear connection was? And finally, probably the most important question, 
what kind of nuclear experience would you like to pair it with? Scale uh, is something that my wife came up with. Uh, we have a couple different options. There's fallout outside, which is you're drinking outdoors, you know, like a nice uh, light beer, maybe some sort of fruity beer, whatever you happen to be enjoying. Fallout is, is clearly incoming. Uh, there's pushing the button, something uh, that you'll have to drink while you're actually the one starting the nuclear exchange uh, with your button pushing. We have nuclear apocalypse. Uh, the world is over. It's a Mad Max style situation out there. What do you'll have? Next, we have happy ground zero hour. You have 15 minutes. You're on, you're the on point target. Too late to make it out, but you have something to drink. What are you going to have? And finally, render safe bender. You're the one cutting the blue wire. What are you going to use to calm your nerves? At the end, I will ask all of my uh, panel of experts here to pick out a single bunker beer, either something from what we discussed today uh, or something else in their collection. And this will be the only beer they would stock in their hypothetical fallout bunker. So please keep that in mind. Let's get started. Before we go right into what I have on tap today, I wanted to discuss a little bit about what I wasn't able to get my hands on today because there's such a great amount of alcohol that has this type of connection to nuclear things. And I asked people on Twitter uh, what they would want to have us to talk about. And I just want to show that this is the selection today is not isolated examples. I'm not going crazy. There's actually a ridiculous amount of them here. The crown jewel that I was trying to get my hands on, but I wasn't able to, is Tactical Nuclear Penguin. It's brewed in Scotland by a company called BrewDog. It's 32% alcohol by volume, an imperial uber stout. Uh, this is it sounds like something that would be would destroy your body, but it would be kind of interesting to try. Can I just say I'm really excited you didn't get that one at 32% ABV. I don't know that this podcast would really make it to the end. No, I don't think we could. I don't think we can actually try it. That would be a tough one to get through. Uh, there's another company called Abel Baker Brewing. Uh, which is out of Henderson, Nevada, outside of Las Vegas. Uh, they make beers like Atomic Duck and Test Site Saison. Uh, this was an interesting one. So when I was visiting uh, the Atomic Test Site with my friend Clark, one of uh, Eric and I's college buddies, we tried this on tap at a couple different places, and it was good. We just couldn't bring any of this home because they didn't have any bottles. Uh, Abel Baker is the code names for a couple different nuclear tests out in Nevada. But also their story is apparently, legend has it, a duck was the only animal to survive the atomic tests that were tested in Nevada. That duck bested the blasts, wandered off, and waddled into history, becoming forever known as the atomic duck. I tried to look into this because I thought that was kind of interesting. I didn't actually see anything in any of my historical documents about an atomic duck surviving a nuclear test. There were a lot of examples of things like goats, dogs, mice, crabs even, that would be tested and maybe survived. The most famous story I've heard is a uh, a pig, a famous pig called Pig 311. Its pig happened to be at the Operations Crossroad Test Able in 1946. He was on a, a boat. They sunk the boat. The pig was swimming around and they picked him up. And they, he lasted for another four years out here in D.C. at the Smithsonian Zoo. But I couldn't find anything about a duck. Uh, we have another one called Nuclear Sunset, which is uh, out in Hard Knot Brewery in West Cumbria, uh, the, in the United Kingdom. They call it a disarmingly peaceful wit beer. This was an interesting one because the brewer tried to name a beer with a nuclear theme to recognize the local history of that part of the United Kingdom where there were nuclear power plants. There was a nuclear sub base uh, building uh, facility, to, like a shipbuilding yard, as well as to commemorate his career in nuclear energy and the 70th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Japan. I'm not sure how you kind of do all of that. 
in one particular beer, very ambitious. Uh, other places have taken a more uh, light, playful approach to this. There's Doomsday Brewing Company in Washington State. They have beers like Nuclear IPA, Prepper Pumpkin Brown, and Blackout Chocolate Stout. There's the Atomic Brewing Company in the Alexandria Arms Inn in Warwickshire, England, actually right near where the game of rugby was invented. They've got some uh, beers like Atomic Fission, Atomic Fusion, Atomic Strike, Atomic Meltdown, Atomic Winter, lots of atomic in the name. I also asked a couple people on Twitter to see what their favorite examples were. Uh, I'll just run through a few of these here. Dmitry Stepanov, who's a Russia council expert, he said that uh, they have some in Russia as well called, one of them translates to nuclear laundry, particularly the black label bottle is one that he recommends. Uh, Andrew Kane uh, says that he has a t-shirt that says, I got wasted at the Rocky Flats Saloon, which I thought was pretty funny. Rocky Flats was where they used to store uh, a lot of our spent plutonium or excess plutonium. So I like the I got wasted there. Uh, Ray Kwong, uh, he recommended the Atomic Alliance Pina Colada IPA, which they make uh, over in Dallas, Texas at the Manhattan Project Brewery. Uh, this is one I wish I would have had more time to, ex to check out. You, you've heard of this one, Eric? I, I looked that up when uh, we were talking about this podcast, and it looks pretty good. I, I'm definitely going to check that out next time I'm out in Dallas. They also make the uh, the Half-Life New England IPA, a Blackberry Fission Saison, and the Double Half-Life uh, Double IPA, in case you're wanting that. Martin Pfeiffer, uh, which people know as Nuclear Anthro on Twitter, uh, he mentioned Bombs Away Brewing out in Albuquerque. Uh, that also does a couple of different events for the Nuclear Museum out there, which he highly recommended to check out. And finally, another one in the UK, uh, Ben Bowman. Uh, he recommended Vulcan Blue Steel Golden Ale at Pheasantry Brewery or the Blue Steel Nuclear Ale brewed out by Cooper and Griffin. And those are all different names, either of uh, bombers that would deliver nuclear weapons in the UK or code names for their test devices. So that's enough of that. Let's get started. To set the mood, I have a nice little quote. I think that will really reflect on what we're trying to accomplish here. So back in the early days of the atomic age, when people started to wonder about what the effects of nuclear weapons would be, the danger, and what those effects would be on the psychology of the American people, Senator Glenn H. Taylor, a Democrat from Idaho, worried that, quote, if people lived in fear of the bomb, if a man knows he goes to bed and at night he may not wake up in the morning, why he may decide to go out and get drunk. People are worried about that, but that's what we're going to accomplish today. All right, everybody ready? Ready as can be. Okay. All right. So let's break into what I have in the studio. The first that we will try out today is a nice white wine from the Nuclear Wine Company based in Los Alamos, California. Not Los Alamos, New Mexico, where they make the first atomic bomb out in California, not too far where, from where Eric grew up. And this is a canned wine. So let's break that open. Yeah. All right. Now we're going to pour. Look at that. Beautiful. That's lovely. All right. all right, everybody, cheers. First wine. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. While you all enjoying this, I'm going to say some, some words here. Uh, according to Nuclear Wine Company's website, we pay homage to the nuclear scientists that came before us who recognized the explosive energy that was harnessed inside the nucleus of an atom, the very center of everything. We've asked ourselves what the nucleus of this industry is, and the science is simple. At its core is the juice, not the container you put it in. We are harnessing a nuclear energy of our own, one that challenges us to stand up and say, yes, we can. We can redefine what it means to go nuclear. 
we can encourage you to not just test your limits, but go beyond them. So I was able to fortunately speak with the Nuclear Wines chief scientist, William Henry, over email about the product and the origin. I asked a couple different questions that I asked a couple of different breweries. Uh, one was, what prompted you to select the nuclear imagery for the company and name marketing? What prompted you to select this, the name? Uh, he says it was selected because it was cool in a retro sort of way. He grew up uh, after the so-called nuclear era, but uh, never had to do any duck and cover drills at his school for the fear of the A-bombs being dropped on his city. He says there was a strange nostalgia surrounding the development of the atomic bomb and the players involved in the Manhattan Project. And it was kind of an interesting coincidence that his winery ended up being located in Los Alamos, California. Uh, an interesting coincidence. So Eric, you uh, you kind of grew up not too far from there, right? From this for this place where its headquarters at? Yeah, just up the uh, the coast from here. I think uh, a lot of people have probably seen the movie Sideways, uh, which is where um, this takes place in uh, this part oh, yeah. of, of wine region, the San Ynez Valley. Um, but what I was kind of struck by was his point about not uh, having to do duck and cover drills. Mm-hmm. We actually kind of did them where we grew up. We were uh, just uh, down the road from uh, the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Hmm. So we had nuclear evacuation drills. Maybe not quite as ridiculous as jumping under the desks, but mm-hmm. we had to get onto buses as quickly as possible and pretend like you're about to drive up uh, up to the, the north part of the county as if hmm. that would really help when we were maybe about... 40 miles from it. No, probably about 10 miles as the crow flows from the power plant. Did, um, did your parents ever have any sort of drills that you would do at home in case that happened or just at school? I, I would, I don't know, I not do them at home. Um, we were worried about earthquakes and making sure all of your bookcases were uh, drilled up against the wall. Yep, that was definitely part of it. I think there was some concern that, uh, um, you know, earthquakes would possibly damage the other uh, power plant. There was also some concern um, after 9-11 especially. And mm. um, the other thing about this uh, vineyard is it's right next to uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base too. So there's definitely some uh, um, ties to the military in this area as well. Probably definitely a, a nuclear target. I was going to say, yeah, that would have been a prime target, right? You got a power plant, yeah. <laughs> an Air Force base. Man, it's getting hit. So I asked Will uh, what his response has been for the beers since people started been drinking this. Uh, he said that he frequently gets questions about the name, that his parents thought it was a terrible choice for his, uh, or his company. He did question it for a while before he decided that uh, he liked it. And he would just, the funny thing was that it was a generational thing, that younger people love the name and seem to have a completely different opinion about the word nuclear. For them, uh, it's a word that is kind of made it into our vernacular in so many different ways, but he loves the marketing potential of the word and uh, wants to make it fun and not too serious. I asked him a very silly question. If there were any concerns that the drinkers may have when they start to see this beverage, were they going to be worried about it having radiation, you know, because it's got a name like nuclear wine into it, uh, or any sort of concern that if people think about, well, do I want to drink that and be reminded of nuclear radiation, nuclear war, that kind of stuff. Uh, he said, luckily, they aren't marketing to that over 60 crowd uh, because he sees the word nuclear uh, and it, they see it in a completely different way. They would never probably buy canned wine anyways. There says they're too set in their ways and that the only quality wine can come from a bottle with a cork. They were trying to, and it's what I like, blast those preconceptions into the stratosphere. So they clearly have a, a different philosophy on, on wine, but also on how that name came about. 
Uh, so what are you guys thinking about this wine? Gabe, you uh, you have the details on, on what the wine is and, and, and some of its characteristics. Yeah, I'm getting notes of uh, plutonium, uh, some deuterium. No, no, it's, I'm just kidding. No, it's a, it's a good wine. So the, I think the tasty notes you wrote here, uh, crisp, well, well-focused white wine, uh, pineapple and apricot on the nose, some tropical fruit flavors, 14.8 ABV, which is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think it's nice. It's it's a nice, uh, uh, has some nice fruit on the nose, I thought. Um, nice dry finish. I don't know. For me, like this one, I, this to me is a more chilling out kind of wine. I don't know what you guys think. I, I probably wouldn't want this if I was like in the heat of a nuclear battle. Let's let's go through our scorecards here. Gabe, want to get us start us off? What do you thought about the taste? And then run through your nuke notes and then your pairing experience. Yeah, I thought uh, taste four. I thought it's very nice. Um, I'm I'm a fan of uh, Chardonnay. I don't like the oaky Chardonnays. These are, this one's pretty nice, clean tasting. Um, Nuke notes. I don't know. I th- I think it's like a two, maybe. I, I I don't really get the. I mean, did you guys get the 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 theme with the can? They were trying to tie it into the can, kind of. So yeah, I I I didn't really get like the can association, but you know, I mean, so they're labeling this as a Chardonnay, right? And yeah. I mean. I'm not a wine guy. I'm definitely more of a beer connoisseur. But, um, you know, like, I didn't get a lot of, like, the butteriness, right, that stereotypically is associated with Chardonnay. Mm. And it was, it was a little bitter on the mm. back end for me. So I, I give it a three. So I, I don't know about you guys, but. Yep, I like it. Um, I am, again, also far from a, a wine connoisseur, especially when it comes to white wine. And you're right, it's not very buttery, but I like that. I don't like the butteriness to a Chardonnay. This one's a little drier. Uh, which is something that I, I kind of like on the other uh, tasting notes. They gave it a four. Was it good being in a can? I, I've never had this. Is my first canned wine. It tasted fine, right? I don't think I taste any difference than if it came from a bottle. Hmm. Well, I'm sure they like to hear that, right? How well do you think it appropriates nuclear themes based on kind of what they were going for? Trying to be ex- explosive, be different, uh, pay homage to nuclear scientists. Do you do you get that? You can see the cans here a little bit too. The imagery is pretty cool. Uh, Eric, how would you describe the the imagery on the can? I think they did pretty well here. Um, one other thing, too. So since uh, you can't ship wine to Virginia, uh, Tim actually had this <laughs> sent to my house in Washington, D.C. Appreciate uh, that. And Yeah, no problem at all. And uh, it was funny. I didn't bring the box over with me, but uh, it came in a box that you opened up, and it said top secret on it. The can certainly has uh, um, some uh, nuclear um, imagery on it and uh, um, talks about uh, being an atomic spy. So they definitely do a lot of it with the packaging, I can see. I think they did a pretty good job there. Yeah, but what I, I, what's the connection? I mean, if it was Los Alamos, New Mexico, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. I don't I don't get what the connection is with this winery to the nuclear stuff. Would you want wine from New Mexico, though? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so the can has uh, uh, has the picture of one of the most famous spies from the Manhattan Project era, uh, Fuchs. I love the little discussions here. It says... The secret life of an atomic spy could sometimes lead a regularly stoic engineer to scream aloud, For Fuchs, Klaus! Special K <laughs> did not mind, for he had a bunker stocked with a floor to ceiling with cans of beautiful Chardonnay. One pop of the top and high level dose of positive energy was unleashed, gluten-free, cage-free, and raised without the use of antibiotics. Nuclear wine company toasts the individual not afraid to enjoy wine from a can. Interesting. It kind of seems like they're toasting uh, Fuchs a little bit in this situation, but anyways, kind of interesting. It is interesting. And I will say this, um, you know, on the theme that they were talking about, about like how they don't necessarily associate nuclear in their name and their brand with something bad, right? The Mm -hmm. atomic bomb, mushroom clouds. So you notice like this is a very kind of like peaceful looking can, right? There isn't like a mushroom cloud on it, right? Like it's the, um, 
the atomic diagram. You've got a picture. A lot of chemistry um, symbols here. Yeah, a picture of Klaus. And I mean, also the fact, I mean, right, like gluten-free, cage-free, raised without anybody else. Like, are, I can't really <laughs> tell if they're being kind of facetious or silly or if they're actually legitimately trying to, you know, target that demographic, right? Like the 30-year-old some odd that is super concerned about all of these things. Mm -hmm. Also a very California thing for them to really promote that in wine, which would never be gluten-free or cage-free. <laughs> <laughs> or have gluten or be raised in cages. Exactly. My point exactly. I only drink caged wine. I only drink the caged grape wine, yeah. I like my grapes to suffer. <laughs> Waterboarded, uh, preferably. Yeah. Well, uh, all right. Let's close it out here. Uh, what kind of experience would you you would pair this with? Me personally, I think this is a wonderful fallout outside. Uh, you know, it's it's sunny outside. You know, maybe you have an umbrella so that you don't get the fallout in your drink itself. But I think this is the kind of experience that I would pair this with. I would say the exact same thing, and also just based on the other categories. You know, I don't really think this wine would be appropriate for anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. If I'm uh, if I'm like nervously biting my fingers trying to render a safe bender, um, I'm drinking bourbon. <laughs> just saying. Yeah, I agree totally. Fallout outside. I'm sitting out in a chair, just drinking this on a sunny day. Let's make that four for four. Fallout outside, so light and refreshing, and could easily chug this uh, once the bomb's coming if I need to. We should get some Adirondack chairs uh, like they used to do when they would be sitting outside watching the Nugler Tesco one. Right. This is exactly the one we go for. It. Uh, all right, so let's move on to our next wine which is also from Nuclear Wine Company because they make a red wine. Gabe, uh, while I go get that wine, why don't you describe to the group uh, what it is and, and what they should be expecting. Sure. So here uh, we are expecting a bold, full-bodied red wine with raspberry and blackberry fruit on the nose, um, followed by some dark cherry and chocolate notes. I note that I'm not a wine guy at all. I'm reading from a page here. I have no idea what any of this means, and I will probably just taste grape. <laughs> I think, uh, I think we're all kind of in that category. Oh, we got a new glass. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're classy. Here. Come on, Gabe. Ooh, it is. I just opened it. It is red. That's a good sign. All right, let's, let's divvy some of this out. So while Gabe is pouring, I will read the different story that's on this red can. So the first one, the nuclear white was an all-white can. This one's an all-red can. Uh, it says, whether you pronounce it like a former commander-in-chief or doc op himself... <laughs> Nuclear wine delivers explosive fruit and radiates good cheer. With a pop of the can, a high-level dose of positive energy is released, creating strong bonds between those who unleash it. Produced from sustainable farmed grapes, gluten-free, cage-free, good, this one is too, and raised without the use of antibiotics. Nuclear Wine Company toasts the individual not afraid to enjoy wine from a can. And it demonstrates that one can is two glasses. All right, gentlemen, well, Cheers. Cheers. Pretty good. All right, so let's, uh, while people are enjoying this and thinking about it, I want to talk about dating wine with radiation. So here's, here's what I have a little story here. Everyone loves a nice aged wine, especially collectors who spend thousands of dollars to get their hands on a really old bottle, either to drink it or to just collect it and put it up on their shelf and show it off at fancy parties. Well, how do you know that the bottle is real or whether or not it's fake? One expert group estimated around 5% of all fine wines are faked. And one way that we can figure this out is to take advantage of atmospheric nuclear testing, looking for trace elements of byproducts that are only found during or after these nuclear detonations. Scientific American did a piece on this a few years ago and found that researchers from the University of Adelaide in Australia figured out a way to use a, an accelerator mass spectrometer 
uh, to compare the level of a radioactive form of carbon, carbon-14, to the level of the more stable and abundant carbon isotope, carbon-12, to figure out when the, when the wine was bottled, and supposedly within a year, which is pretty good. Uh, the researchers said that until the late 1940s, all carbon-14 in the Earth's atmosphere was produced by the interaction between cosmic rays and nitrogen in the upper atmosphere. This changed in the late 1940s up to 1963, when atmospheric nuclear testing significantly increased the amount of C-14 in the atmosphere. When the bomb's test stopped in 1963, carbon-14 from nuclear tests became diluted by carbon dioxide from uh, fossil fuels. So I guess, yay, climate change. Yay! on that particular front. Uh, but the scientists were able to determine, based on how much uh, C14 is in it, you can determine what year the wine may have been bottled. Another way, I think this is kind of a little more interesting, is you can look for cesium-137, which is a pretty nasty byproduct uh, of nuclear tests. And according to an NPR story, uh, Philippe Hubert, a physicist at the University of Bordeaux, can test the authenticity of wine by putting the wine near a radiation detector shielding it from background radiation and recording the amount of gamma rays from cesium-137. Because, of course, this is like the French contribution to science, right? This is what French <laughs> physicists, it's all wine-based research. Exactly. University of Bordeaux. So if the wine was bottled before the dawn of the nuclear age in 1945, there should be no cesium-137 in the wine at all. Cesium-137, it's not a natural byproduct. It only comes from nuclear tests. Uh, it's not dangerous in the quantities that you would see pretty much in everything these days. It's really bad if you get a certain dose of it. Uh, but because of fallout patterns and the way they are, pretty much everything has some sort of cesium-137 in it. That They can detect this, and it's really cool. They don't actually even have to open up the bottle. They can just check through because it will go right through the glass, the gamma rays. Uh, and they can determine whether or not the wine is old. Uh, at least before 1945. So if it's like an older bottle of wine from that time period, if it's got cesium in it, it's probably not uh, true and it's probably a fake. Uh, so I don't know if anyone has any wine in their collection they need tested. Nope. But uh, the wine that we have here on the table, what do you all think about this? Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I'm not as big a fan of this one as I was the white. To me, it was like a little more one note. It tastes kind of like fruit that isn't really ripe yet and it just just kind of stays there. I'm not, not as big of a fan of this one. And I would agree. I'm typically far more of a fan of red wine than white wine, but I usually like a, a more full-bodied, heavy red wine, like a cab. Um, this is a, a red table wine, um, so it's supposed to be a little bit more muted in its, uh, in its flavors. I give this one a, a three. Um, I, would, I would certainly prefer the, uh, the white over the red. Yeah, I'm with you on three for this. Yeah, I think uh, th three for me too. And, you know, like uh, the wine might not have been my favorite, but I did enjoy the uh, jab of George W. Bush on the can, though. So it's been a long time since I've heard that joke. <laughs> yeah, this one, it's kind of hard to, re to see the picture on the back here, kind of wh what it is. It looks like it's, a, it's, it's, uh, it's Robert J. Oppenheimer there, but it's kind of hard to see. Would you say that's what it's supposed to be? Yeah, I think it is. It says uh, Doc Op on the uh, the bottom of it. Yeah. I, so I'm always curious of people when they when they get this kind of wine, if they are not marketing to the over 60 crowd, how do people know who Robert Oppenheimer is? I guess there's the Manhattan TV show. I don't know. I don't know what the level of education people is when they, they do they hear and learn about Robert Oppenheimer. I mean, I, I'm far from a nuclear expert. I certainly know who he is, but I am a big history buff, so I don't know that I'm necessarily the, the target audience that you're talking about there either. But once again, I, I just don't I don't get the – so they just put – I guess on each of their wines, they put a different scientist from the nuclear age. I just don't 
I don't get what that has to do with this wine. And yeah, I, I'm not sure who's going to get this. I mean, I wouldn't pick this up if they put like baseball players on it or like presidents or something. I get that. But this is just, I think it's a little too obscure. Maybe I'm being too super critical here, but I don't know. Will and Tim, are you the only guys who are going to enjoy this? I mean, I certainly do. I thought So I thought the wine, uh, it, it does fit uh, a, a table wine. Uh, this one's 14.2. Wow. It's a, it's a big wine. Um, you know, I wouldn't probably buy this one over the white wine. I think I would prefer the white wine between the two of them. Uh, if I had to describe this particular pairing experience, um, this might be a, a nuclear apocalypse wine because it's the kind of wine that I think would be would feel good in that environment. It's not like a refreshing wine. It's kind of it hits you pretty hard, and you're living pretty hard uh, in a, in a post nuclear apocalypse. I think this is exactly the kind of wine that I would want to pair. With that experience, and uh, Gabe, to, to your point, I mean, I, I just um, I, first of all, I don't think m- many people, uh, you know, the the average Joe won't recognize Robert Oppenheimer by name, right? Especially by picture, but e- even by name, right? The only thing that, like, even I, like, as someone who's worked in the field for a long time, like, associated him with uh, originally, right, is his quote, right? You know, when uh, mm-hmm. when they first tested the the bomb. He was quoted as uh, saying, uh, now I've become death, the destroyer world, right? And that's kind of illustrating how torn he was by what he had just done, uh, his role in uh, helping create the bomb. You know, I can't say for sure, but I bet you if you went out and asked 100 random people on the street if they knew who Robert Oppenheimer was, I, you would probably get like two yeses. Hmm. Well, hopefully this wine uh, serves that educational role. You know, I think it's really one of those things, can you learn stuff very well when you're drinking? It's not like one of the, one of the can you can you learn can you study for a, a class while you're drinking because then you only remember it again when you're already drinking like that there's that principle I think no but there's a there's a business concept here this is like education through wine we start teaching you teach about nuclear scientists we could have like math problems and just like <laughs> slowly reeducate the populace through through alcohol I like this idea well it's like if you train uh, as an Olympic athlete in Denver when it's the the air is really thin. You can then do it much better when you're not in a place where the air is thin. I think it's the same concept. Well, don't you risk the uh, the beer fest problem where, like, if you do something, yeah. you learn something when you're drunk, you're only going to remember it when you're drunk again, right? That's great. Yeah. Okay. So for me, I, I'm two on the on the nuke themes. Don't think that does that very well. For me, this is nuclear apocalypse. I I, I don't think it's that great. This is just. If I just need to get a buzz on because the end is coming, grab this and, yeah, just don't really care that much. I think I'm going to change it up a little bit on the uh, the pairing here. I think I would go with the Render Safe Bender. I think uh, a red wine is a nice little chill drink to help you calm the nerves a little bit. Okay. I think that's what I'll go with on this one. All right. That's uh, that's pretty bold. Um, I'm, I'm still going to go with uh, Fallout Outside. Not going to be terribly original on this, but, you know, I guess I associate wine in general with more chill things than anything nerve-wracking, stressful, where I, again prefer bourbon <laughs> and, and, and maybe that's a, another reason why they put these in cans too especially when we went back to the, the white wine being a good outdoor drinking type of drink um, maybe that's a, a big benefit of putting them in cans too out on the boat or on the beach or something like that better than taking a whole bottle with you i like that yes and i think one of the ideas too is is that you can pack this away pretty easy you know you, you can squish it and then put it into your pack or put it into a recycling bin as opposed to kind of hard to bring bottles so this is just a generational thing I've noticed about being in D.C. too. So when canned wine started coming on the scene about two years ago, I feel like one of the major marketing things that they're trying to buy into. So, A, you know, like there's a younger crowd, 25 to 35. Canned wine is also super easy to bring into venues where you're not allowed to bring uh. alcohol because nobody knows what it is. They're not looking for it. They're like, oh, this is what? 
grape juice? I don't know. Um, it's clearly not wine. It looks like it's a, some sort of educational drink you would get at a science lab, right? I mean, not not saying that I've done this before, but I've heard <laughs> that people do this. Yeah, be like, it's cool. It has scientists on it. It's Russian spy propaganda. <laughs> uh, what an age we live in. All right, so let's move on to our third treat here. Uh, and since Gabe is more of the, the French fluency speaker here, I'm going to have him pronounce what we got here. Uh, so this is going to close out our wine flight. Uh, what do we got here, Gabe? All right, so this is a 2016 vintage Domaine du Mistral from the Rhone Valley uh, in France. The region is called Grignan les Ademars. I don't know where exactly this is. Tim, you, you, you've done some research on this, right? This is heavily, uh, heavily researched, so you know all about this region. So this is a wine I've been trying to get my hands on for a couple of months, and I have, I have some fun history here. Now, you may wonder what this has to do with anything nuclear at all. A little bit of background. The Triscaten Nuclear Power Center in July 2008 had a little bit of an accident of about 4,800 gallons of a liquid solution containing natural uranium was accidentally released and got out of the plant and into the local rivers. Tests showed that there were levels of radioactivity, but 5% higher than the allowed limits. Now, in France, this is a big problem because wine obviously is a really big deal. Wine labels must show the location of where the wine is from uh, and where it's made, and they take that very seriously. You can't call something a Bordeaux unless it is from Bordeaux. Same thing with champagne. Now, after the nuclear power plant accidents, uh, vineyards making wine with labels showing that the product was, Gabe, how would you pronounce this? Oh, uh, yeah, the label was uh, from Coteau du Triscatin. Yep, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, that uh, wine region uh, saw their sales drop dramatically. Uh, as you may expect, because it was all in the news. People stopped drinking that wine, either in France or some other places. So the winemakers in the region got together, and they had some ideas for solutions. Uh, some printed the region in really tiny print, uh, almost like they were trying to get away with it, uh, like uh, you would see in like car commercials when you see the terms of conditions read out really quickly or in really tiny print. Others marketed the wine with Geiger counters, like in big promotional things to show that there, it wasn't radioactive at all. <laughs> And ultimately, enough of the vineyards got together and they lobbied the INAO, or the uh, Institute for National Origin of Quality, something like that. I think that's roughly how it translates for it. They asked for the region to change its name on the labels to anything but uh, Trikistan or Trikistan. <laughs> so something else, right? So in 2010, uh, the INAO uh, allowed the name change, a really big deal for them. So starting that year, the wine started to be known as this region, the Grignon uh, Les Adimers, something along those lines. So that's what we're drinking here today. So and if I recall, didn't you send me on some wild goose chat? I was at Total Wine, and I got a call from you, and you're like, I need— like any call from Tim, it's like nuclear weapons. Uh, and then it was like, I need, I need this wine, alcohol, uh, nuclear. And I was trying to make sense of it. But you've been looking for this for a while, right? Yeah. So uh, I went to a really fancy wine uh, store right around in the Arlington area. And I asked the gentleman who was from France, uh, you know, where can I get this wine? And I showed him the picture and this, told him the history of it. And he's like, hmm, you're not going to find wine from this region at all in anywhere in dc or in the united states and i said well why is it is it like kind of small batches the quantity is not very good or what, what is the situation and he laughed and he said you won't find it in a reputable place because it is quote gas station wine so then i asked him okay well i'm going to go to france and i'm going to paris in two weeks can i find it at like a store there and he goes 
you might find it randomly at a gas station because it's gas station wine. So we went to, to, to France. Uh, we couldn't find it in any of the stores, but like you said, we went to this really cool uh, wine shop near the Pantheon in France, the uh, De Venus Illustribus, uh, which was really cool. The, the owner there was really nice. They showed us their 17th century wine cellar where they had a bunch of old wines there. And I thought it was really cool. And I asked him about this particular region and he said, no joke, he would not sell that wine there because it was quote, gas station wine. I think he called it petrol station wine. So, so question, how many, how many gas stations did you have to go to before you found this wine? You know, I was in Paris. We only saw one gas station the entire time we were there because we were in the middle of the city. So unfortunately, I did not see it. I never found it there. Uh, but then I did search online that it was available at the local Total Wine. We were able to get a bottle of it. So this is what we're drinking here today. Um, so I hope, I hope you enjoy it. And the funny thing was, the owner of this 17th century wine cellar volunteered once he knew I was working in the nuclear industry that someone had come by to do some of the radiation detection things that we mentioned earlier and for his wine. Someone from a local university wanted to test out their equipment, and they, they went and tried it out, and he says all of his wines passed. How did you find out about that? Like, where did the, How did you hear about this whole thing with the wine region? Was this from just your random readings? Yeah, so it's just there was an uh, article in the New York Times about from 2016 uh, when this came out, and I thought that was really cool, so I'm going to keep an eye out and look for it. I was planning to maybe do a whole episode just on the one bottle let alone the 10 that we're going to talk about today. Well, I, I don't know about you guys. For, so for me, I think this is like the great appropriation of nuclear. I mean, this is so this is such a cool thing, and it's cool that they actually don't want it. It's not on the label at all. You, you would have it's no un, idea. It's like unappropriation. Yeah. Um, the wine itself, I think, is just okay. It's probably a three for me, but I just think it's so cool, the whole backstory. Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think about it, the other Eric and Will? So I, I would tend to agree. Um, I would probably give it a two. I, I don't know if I'm being super critical here, it, but it was, um, was nine ninety nine. <laughs> that's well. That sounds about right. Uh, although I will say, at Trader Joe's, you can get some really good wines for under nine ninety nine. Excellent, Trader Joe's sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> so I think uh, I'm getting uh, hints of petrol in the nose. Uh, maybe <laughs> a little bit of finish of, uh, of uranium uh, from the uh, the seepage. Yeah, no. It, it's okay. Like, I actually don't know that it's that much worse than the one that we just had either. Um, mm. It's definitely, there's not a whole lot going on in this wine, though. It almost tastes like grape juice. You can definitely get the grapes in there and not a, not a whole lot else. Well, this might be a good one then for, uh, for me, it might be for, for pushing the button because it, it gets the job done. It's a, you don't, if you're feeling, I, I'm going to say this, if you're feeling guilty about having to push the button, you don't want to have a wine that you're going to enjoy. So you just want a, a wine that really makes you reflect on what you're doing and the dangers of nuclear uh, power and all of that. I think this is a good one for, for that. That's my, my reach for this one. I might go with a nuclear apocalypse because that's probably what it would take for me to drink a wine like this if there's really <laughs> nothing else left on earth. And you already know that you're getting some of the, uh, uh, some of the radiation from it, so you may as well. Okay. Game. Yeah, I'm going to go with my choice from last time. Uh, I, I think it's um, it's nuclear apocalypse. I just, you know, I don't even care at this point. It's just, <laughs> it's, I just want to get a little buzz going before the end. Uh, nice. That's that's fair. No, and uh, I'm actually going to go ahead and uh, agree with Timothy on this one. I think, uh, yeah, pushing the button, you know, it's uh, it's something that you got to do. Just get the job done. You don't really want to enjoy it, right? Kind of like uh, self, uh, 
self-hate, you know? It's like, yeah, no, I, I think that's good. But I, I will say this, though. So, like, you know, we, we both, we, we commented on the fact that, like, they didn't do anything, like, new culture-wise to promote this wine, right? And they, I, if anything, they tried to avoid they it. They tried to yeah. avoid it. But I feel like, you know, I mean, you just pointed out, right? You thought it was a cool story. You sought this wine out because mm. of it. You know, when, when you've got the, the car stacked against you, right? Like, when life gives you lemons, right? <laughs> Make lemonade. They, you know, should have embraced it, right? Like, I, I thought that could have, yeah. you know, like... No, I agree. Missed opportunity. Yep. Hmm. Well, especially as we're talking about maybe for younger connoisseurs who don't have as much of the history of, uh, of nuclear um, issues, such as the older generation that we talked about the last vineyard, um, maybe there's not as much of a fear there as there would be with older generations. Hmm. The whole nuclear impact on French wine, I think, is fascinating. Uh, so, all right. So people here aren't really big wine drinkers, but that's all right because we're done with wine now. Let's move on to the hard stuff. Uh, I'm going to make a couple cocktails here. The Atomic Cocktails, a recipe from the kind that was served in Las Vegas during the heyday of nuclear testing that took place about 70 miles uh, north of uh, Las Vegas. This one is equal parts champagne, vodka, brandy, and a s splash of sherry. So, well, uh, well Timothy is uh, up uh, ma making our cocktails. Uh, let's. Uh, I'll read off some fun history about uh, the nuclear testing. Um, so as we all know from the uh, the Fallout games, uh, nuclear culture surrounding the test was a really big thing. Anyways, they had everything from beauty pageants to nuclear-themed cars, diners, events. Um, you could actually buy tickets to see the nuclear test firsthand in Vegas. There were hotels that specifically advertised that they had windows that gave you the best view in town of the nuclear test it was rather bizarre. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce printed up calendars advertising when the tests were happening and the best spots for watching them. One gambling magnet even declared that the best thing to happen to Vegas was the atomic bomb. Um, this may or may not be true. I don't know if it was the best thing for the world, per se, but uh, Vegas seemed to do pretty well, at least for a couple of years. This is just a crazy... This is like, I guess, the modern-day equivalent of when they had Civil War battles and people would come out to the battlefield to, like, watch, and it's like... People going out to watch, like, oh, we're going to test this weapon of mass destruction. What a great day to go outside and watch. Absolutely. And to be totally fair, I mean, before people really knew the dangers of radiation and how bad nuclear weapons were, like, for the atmosphere, for the environment, um, they were kind of beautiful, right? Like, this, the flash, the mushroom crowd, it was a symbol of progress that the human race was moving into almost a got weird godlike sphere because in essence the nuclear bomb symbolized the ability to end worlds and we didn't really associate it with that like culture wise but we were certainly fascinated by it yeah i feel like that's a, a human phenomenon to really love seeing uh progress and technology and things like that but the thing that blows my mind is this all happened after hiroshima and nagasaki it's not like yeah. we hadn't seen the dangers of nuclear weapons used firsthand um, I guess that maybe tells you a little bit about the way that the, those uh, bombings were covered by the news here. Um, I don't know that we really knew um, in America kind of what the um, really big downside of it was, but it's just kind of crazy thing that's happened after those two bombs were dropped. Well, so this is actually a really good point, right? Because, so, you know, um, we grew up in, we're the CNN generation, right? Like, yeah. that was a big thing, like, with the Iraq War and everything. The 24-hour news cycle 
is big for us. But, you know, back in World War II, that wasn't the case, sure. right? Like, would people, so, you know, now, like, in, in the classroom environment and stuff, like, we've all been able to see the pictures, the videos, right, that have come, that came out from Hiroshima sure. and Nagasaki. But I don't know that that was really the case back then, right? So people are like, oh, this is wonderful and beautiful. They didn't really associate it with the humanitarian cost and impact that right. these weapons have. Right. This is a kind of a long cocktail. It takes a little bit of time. There we go. Yeah. You guys hear that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious. And all right, so Tim, you're back with us. You made the cocktail. Didn't you go to this hotel when you were visiting Vegas? So I didn't go to the hotel, but I did go to Atomic Liquors, which I'm wearing their wonderful hat uh, during today's episode. So we went to Atomic Liquors, which is one of the oldest bars, uh, continually operating bars in Las Vegas, located near the Fremont Street. Uh, really great dive bar. Recommend checking it out. They used to hold uh, viewing parties on the roof. And while I, I think they still serve the atomic cocktail, it's normally served, I apologize, gentlemen, in a martini glass. I am so offended. I don't, God! I don't own any martini glasses. How glass. dare you give us free drinks and not serve them in the proper glassware? Shenanigans! You know, be, we're, I'd be super critical about certain things. You can hit me right back on my glass uh, collection. So here's what we got here. Uh, the color looks a bit like a combination because it involves both brandy, some sherry, so it's a little dark. Yeah, and you, you've nicely garnished this with an orange wedge. It's a very nice presentation. Gigantic orange here. That's extra points, right? The presentation. Thank you. Uh, make, up, make up for my lack of glasses here. Well, yeah, what do you guys think? Because usually they would do these really, really early in the morning. Uh, like, for the, for the morning. <laughs> it's pretty strong. your face, man. <laughs> yeah, no. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing too well here. Yeah. No. So, I think the, the sherry... The sherry vodka champagne, like the sherry's just not playing nicely in this one. Mm -hmm. I'm mostly getting brandy in this. I think that really comes through a lot more than the other flavors. I would probably uh, switch up the, the recipe here a little bit and maybe add a little more champagne to cut down on that. Okay. Well, imagine I was a, a better bartender and can make this to a little better proportion here. You think that you this could be a drink that you would enjoy? This is not my first time drinking with you, Tim. So I'm going to say this is probably not operator error. I think this is recipe error. I, I just... Remember, we made this for our Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull episode. I think I might have made them better for that episode than this one. No? Same, same style? <laughs> I, I, yeah, same thing. No, I, I, I'm, I give this a two. This is just a ungodly. This is like a product of... There was like the cocktail golden age in like the 1920s, and then like really bad cocktails, and now we're back in the cocktail gold. This is from that bad part, I think. <laughs> Eric, what do you think? Maybe a little bit nicer than a two. I might go a, a three on this. Um, not really for me. Um, I can see how uh, if you like brandy, this might be something that, mm -hmm. that would be a, a good drink, but not something that I'm enjoying. Okay. I'd, I'd, I'd give it a two, um, and I would definitely – you know what? I, I would go ahead and say that this is a good nuclear apocalypse drink because, you know, you really just don't care. Everything's gone to hell, you know? Yeah. yeah. I feel like this is – but to be fair, you don't really have time to mix cocktails in the nuclear apocalypse. There may not be all these things around, right? You may usually have to drink straight, like, gin that they made in a, a toilet as opposed to all, having all of these things put together. Which is kind of what this tastes like, so. Oh. <laughs> I think this is this is, like, the very specific nuclear experience is being in the hotel – in like 1950 whatever and watching the blasts go off that's really the only place where this cocktail is appropriate you can try this alexa play frank sinatra shuffling songs by frank sinatra 
Now does take take another sip, one more sip, see if this <laughs> helps at all. That'll put you in the mood a little bit. Uh, still no. <laughs> Alexa, stop. I mean, this might not be a bad Fallout shelter drink if you happen to have the ingredients. Because let's be honest, you're going to be killing time while you're sitting down there. Mm-hmm. You might want to mix yourself up a cocktail. Spend a little time putting the ingredients together. The orange does help, though. I was drinking it without yeah, the orange yeah. first. The orange is really good in there. So I was hoping that this was going to be what I saw when I went to a Golden Knights hockey game. So when I was in Las mm-hmm. Vegas for a, for the, for the uh, visiting the nuclear test site, we went to one of their games. And they have something called, I think it's like a, called Atomic Fizz or Atomic Cocktail. And it's on tap. It's a couple different combinations of things. And it is a cocktail. But it's not this one. It's got like grape juice and other kind of things into it. It was super delicious. Uh, but it wasn't this traditional Atomic Cocktail. Yeah, that would be much more of a mass marketing type of drink. So it was a cocktail that they put in kegs and then it was pressurized and on tap. Yeah. Sweet. It worked out pretty well. It was like 13 or $14, but... I have a budget for these things. I can. These are all tax write-off for me, I'm pretty sure. It's the cheapest drink in Vegas. <laughs> all right, so let's move on to our beer menu. Now, I'm going to open up our beers from now on with my Beers Not Bombs can opener, uh, which is on my keychain. It's You can order these on the internet. They are made from decommissioned or disarmed nuclear launch facilities. Basically, they strip all the copper out of the miles and miles of wiring that go between the different launch facilities and the, the silos where the missiles are at. And when they decommission these things, they got sold, melted down, made into bronze, and you can buy these on the internet. I, I got to ask you, Tim. So um, I've been wanting one of those for a while, ever since I started my job at Plowshares Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that that existed until today. I, I've only seen the wall-mounted one. You know, the one's yep. about like 60 bucks. Um, but my biggest hesitation is, so, like, I have a really sweet opener on my keychain. And we're, we're just going to throw in some, like, fun non-nuke facts here. <laughs> so this one's from San Francisco. It's an Anchor Steam um, bottle opener. But it's solid titanium. Ooh. And the reason I love this so much is, A, it's light. It's extremely light. You can barely even tell it's on your keychain. But it also, like, does not, like, chip, right? Like, it doesn't wear down at all. I had a couple of, like, aluminum ones, you know, the cheap ones you get in the store. Mm-hmm. Garbage. I've had this for 10 years. It's been great. So so I've not seen any chipping. It is interesting because its, its whole thing is made to look like uh, Fat Man. It's it's round, and the, the tail fins are where you open up the beer. It's not the greatest clearance right. to where it's at. So I am worried eventually that this is going to wear down. Yeah. But you kind of have to uh, hold it over the cap. And open that way, as opposed to what you normally would just kind of flip it with your wrist. Mm-hmm. It's more of a you kind of cover over, but it works out okay. Here, can, can I uh, can I hold yeah. that just? To... I'm gonna open up uh, these and pour them out. Gabe, do you want to read us a little bit about our our first beer here, which is called Adam Splitter by the City of Cambridge Brewery in Cambridge, United Kingdom. Yeah, so um, it's a uh, 4.5% alcohol by volume, so it's uh, definitely English-style beer, which tend to be a little bit lower alcohol. English beers actually happen to be my favorite style, so I'm, I'm particularly looking forward to uh, tasting this. Uh, this is a golden ale bursting with hoppy flavors, brilliant with Thai curries and other Asian foods. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm expecting a nice... Light, easy drinking beer. This maybe is going to be in the fallout outside uh, category for me. <laughs> Should we just start with one of them? Yeah, just one. Yeah, so we have, we have quite a lot to go through here. A literal cooler full of beer. <laughs> like I, I don't, I know you guys can't see this, but uh, it's a beautiful thing. So the, the reason I have this beer at all because it was sent to us by an awesome fan of the show. 
uh, John over at Vortex Aero Media, a company that specializes in media services for the aerospace and defense industries. He can be found on Twitter if you want to reach out to him and thank him for the for the beer like we did at Vortex Aero Media, A-E-R-O, and VortexAereoMedia.com. So, J- John, thanks very much for sending this over. Uh, here's a little bit of history about the brewery. It was founded in 1997 using inspiration from the beautiful city of Cambridge to name their products. Adam Splitter is named after Cambridge's long association with research into the nature of the atom. The Cavendish Laboratory is a world-leading research center into atomic and nuclear physics. Once had the discoverer of the electron as one of their professors, J.J. Thompson, and his students included Ernest Rutherford, who discovered nuclear fission, and Charles Wilson, who invented the cloud chamber. Uh, I was able to speak with Steve from the brewery over email, I uh, asked him a couple questions, similar to the questions I asked of nuclear wine, uh, kind of why, and I asked him why they named it this way. He says, the beer sells very well because it's very well made. High quality product with an excellent taste. We have many repeat customers and we get very good feedback. And this is interesting. They've not had many comments about the name, but one very positive story was when the beer was specifically chosen to be served at a dinner for nuclear scientists in Cambridge. They're definitely hitting that market. And I thought that was a pretty cool little history. I asked him the silly question of, do people, when they drink this, think about radiation? And is that a problem for their marketing? He says he does not think so because people associate the beer uh, with uh, more positive branding. It celebrates a time in, in scientific discovery as well as being uh, linked in a positive way to Cambridge and the university. So this one is definitely trying to hit at local history. And the label is super interesting. Gabe, how would you describe uh, what the bottle looks like yeah it's it's uh the label is basically a, a white jacket it almost looks like a science lab and and uh so essentially a, a torso with a white jacket and a and a tie so it definitely looks like somebody from the lab so all of their beers have these kind of bespoke jackets uh or have these style of jackets they're all different colors so i think the jacket itself is just their style for all of their beers so really the only thing that that it's about atomic things on there is basically just the name what is there any description on the side uh yeah here it talks about uh there's a little um description of ernest rutherford uh 1871 through 1937 physicist and director of the cavendish laboratory at cambridge known as the father of nuclear physics he won the nobel prize in 1908 um and uh, no i think this so I think this beer does a very good job of, you know, there's that connection. Remember that wine? There was like no real connection here. There's a connection to the brewery. There's a reason why they did this. Um, so they, they did a good job. But I don't know about you guys. I'm in my happy place. This is like ideal beer for me. I love these English beers with these like biscuity kind of malty uh, uh, cookie type flavors. And the hop is just like nicely done, not over hopped, um, tropical fruit. I, I'm, I'm very happy with this one. So is this a, is this a happy hour? <laughs> I was actually going to say, for me, I was going to say render safe bender because if I was about to uh, clip the wire, I'd need something that would make me feel really good, mm-hmm. like put me in the zone, and this would just be like a sip of this puts me in my happy place. I'm ready to cut cut the wire, you know, make things uh, make things awesome. I like it, Eric. What about you? Um, I think I might go with a three on this. Um, it's just not as much of my style. I do like things to be a little bit hoppier, a little bit more. Um, things going on inside of the beer. You're right. This is a very English beer. What is it? A 4.5 ABV? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is very reminiscent of most beers that you're going to get in England. Um, I give it a, probably a three. Again, not not so much on probably the, the beer itself, but my preferences. In terms of my pairing experience, um, 
might go Fallout outside. I think it's a light, refreshing beer. Um, so I think that's probably where I would put it. Yeah, I would go uh, if there was a pub that had outdoor seating. I would go right here. <laughs> like if Fallout's incoming, if there's still enough pressure in the CO2 nitrogen tank, I'd pour a few of these out and, and, and see and see what happens. I rate it a little bit higher. Uh, I give it a four. Um, also, I also I also rate this as a four. I like the quality of this a lot. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's good. It's overall a good beer. I like the the kind of like the nuclear cultural uh, appropriation because it's like it's not over the top. It's actually kind of like historically meaningful as connections. I thought I, th- I thought it was like a classier rather than gaudy. Um, so I give it a four for that. And um, like yeah, for me this is a kind of like a happy uh, happy ground zero hour beer. You know, um, I mean. There are prob- there are definitely drinks that I would probably do before I did that, but this this would suffice. If there wasn't really a whole lot of options, this would be a good one. Excellent. Uh, so thanks again, John, for sending this. And if anyone's out in, in the Cambridge area in the United Kingdom, uh, I would go check this out. I got to see this next time I'm out that way. Gabe, you're in London quite a lot. Got to maybe make a stop over to Cambridge. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get over there, go to the brewery, and and drink some of this. Hopefully, no no nuclear attacks during that time though. <laughs> If you want to hear about nuclear attacks in the United Kingdom, you should listen to our very popular but depressing episode on Threads, the the TV movie uh, where nuclear bomb goes off in Sheffield. Uh, I think there is a little bit of drinking in that one. There's a couple pub scenes, but not many afterwards, after the bomb goes off anyway. So so nothing like Shaun of the Dead type, yep. uh, go, go to the pub immediately? <laughs> yeah. Go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? All right, so so we're halfway through, gentlemen. Everyone feeling good? Uh, we we got we got five more to go. So feeling good. I'm just glad we're on the uh, beer section now. Any anything in the name of science? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's what's up next: Bikini Beer by Evil Twin Brewery. I think they're the distributor. Uh, it's in collaboration. I think it was brewed by Two Roads Brewing in Connecticut, uh, according to the can. Named after an atomic bomb test grounds designed by a French car engineer, the bikini was to many a disturbing and degrading creation, but fortunately for others, a series of emancipation. This attractively light-bodied, seductively well-balanced, and very drinkable bikini beer is anything but a sissy beer. Although it, it is 2.7 alcohol by volume. It's, it's, it's kind of a sissy beer. <laughs> Uh, well, let's give it a shot. I had this first when I was out in Las Vegas, right before this the previously aforementioned uh, Golden Knights hockey game. They were selling this uh, out in a tap, and we could drink it outside. Uh, so, yeah, what do you guys think? Um, yeah, I'm actually so I'm intrigued by this because I like I like the idea of a session beer, which is a beer that you can uh, with a little lower alcohol, so you can drink quite a few of them and and still be able to walk yourself home. And I, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, for 2.7%, I think this beer gives quite a lot of punch. If I was drinking out in the summertime, I actually, I'd give this a serious look. I think it, it has a lot of flavor and, and body for, I think it punches above its weight, uh, so to speak. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed, actually. How would you describe the uh, label, Gabe? Uh, it's a it's a beautiful uh, yellow can. Um, there is a stylized kind of bikini but uh, no, it's cool. It's like uh, art and yellow, and it makes me think about summertime, and maybe I'm in Bikini Atoll, uh, you know, drinking one of these. I'm going to have to absolutely agree here. When I saw 2.7%, I was thinking there's no way this beer could have any flavor. I mean, session beers, which I really do love, are usually more in the 35 4% range. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and this is, goes well below that, but there's a lot going on in this beer. The nose has a lot of action going into it. You can really get a lot of those fruit notes, and you get the hops coming through. It's got a lot of flavor, too. This is a fantastic beer. I think I would probably go four, maybe close to a five, probably four and a half, I would call it. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. Yeah, one being a sissy beer, 4.5 is anything but. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, I'm uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. And this actually tastes uh, – it's very similar to one of my favorite beers, Founders All Day IPA. Mm-hmm. It's got a little bit more of like a sparkling, like bitter. But, I mean, they're, bo- they're both sessions. They're both very good. But, I mean, for – yeah, two point seven. Like you could, this should be the all day IPA. I could, I could drink this beverage all day, and I would not get buzzed. Excellent. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about what it would be like uh, for people when they were doing atomic testing, uh, and what they would do to to buzz beer with radiation. So ever since the dawn of the nuclear age, uh, we have wondered as a species, what would happen to our beer in the event of a nuclear attack. I refer listeners to Alex Wellerstein's writing on the subject, uh, both an article called Bomb Appetit and another one he wrote on his excellent blog, Restricted Data, called Beer and the Apocalypse from 2012. It draws on recently declassified reports about the Operation Teapot series of nuclear tests in 1955, where civil defense planners wanted to know how nuclear detonations would affect a range of household items, first from the house itself to clothing, beverages, and food. So here's from the final report where they reported on the results of the test. Quote, consideration of the problems of food supply show the needs of humans for water could be immediate and urgent. At various times, some consideration was given to special packaging of potable water. But since packaged beverages, both beer and soft drinks, are so ubiquitous and already uniformly available in urban areas, it is obvious that they could serve as an important source of fluids. So essentially they're telling us to go out and and drink beer uh, and not potable water, because who has that anyways? So Project 32.2A studied the matter of exposing, quote-unquote, bottles of and cans of beer, including, I love this, an actual can of Pabst Blue Ribbon, to nuclear detonations that were between a quarter of a mile to two miles away. They buried them in loose soil that they dug trenches and stuck them right in there and wanted to see what happened when they detonated a nuclear bomb uh, not too far from there. And I actually, when I visited the nuclear test site, we saw exactly where all these trenches and everything were. So here's what the results were, according to, to Alex Wallerstein. So first we talk about vessel integrity. Most of the bottles had a pretty high survival rate, even un- unless they were hit by debris or quote-unquote missiles. So unless they hit, got hit by something and they punctured the beer, they actually survived the blast wave and all of those things pretty well. Uh, radiation, only the bottles closest to ground zero, had much radioactivity, and it was, quote, well within the permissible limits for emergency use. Safe enough for the short term, but, you know, I wouldn't make it a habit if that was the only thing you had available to drink. Uh, according to the study, soda was better in terms of radiation, uh, because beer, by reason of its higher natural salt content, exhibited a somewhat higher level of activity than soft drinks. Huh, a little something interesting there. So that's that's potability. What about taste? Would people actually want to drink this stuff? According to the study, the examination said that immediately upon recovery, it showed no observable gross changes in the appearance of the beverage. Immediate taste results indicated that the beverages, both beer and soft drinks, were still of commercial quality, although there was evidence of a slight flavor change in some of the products that were exposed uh, at uh, 1,270 feet from ground zero. Those further away showed no change. 
And here, because they really wanted to get super critical about it. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. <laughs> representative samples of the various exposed packages of beer, as well as the unexposed control samples in both cans and bottles, were submitted to five qualified laboratories for careful controlled tasting. Uh, the cumulative opinions on the various beers indicated a range that range from commercial quality through aged and definitely off with the different categories. All agreed, however, that the beer could be unquestionably used in an emergency source of potable beverages. So we have scientific evidence that has indicated that beer tastes the same. If it survives without being hit by a missile, uh, if it's not too close, it tastes just about the same. Pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually had a chance to read uh, Alex Willerstein's blog post. And uh, I mean, there were a couple of the uh, observations that he made in there that I that really stood out to me. So for one, um, the phrase there, the need of humans <laughs> for water. I mean, so, it's so robotic and like an uh, you, I mean, it's like, alien, right? It would be an alien demonstration of what human needs were. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> so that, that's that's pretty funny. And I mean, like he writes really well. He does write really well, but also like back back in the nineteen late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties. I mean, this was like how they talked like at the time, especially in the scientific community. You know, I don't know. It lends uh, an, a voice to how absurd like what they were doing really was. Mm -hmm. Also, the the thing that really stuck out to me there in in the language that they used was immediately after the test, right? Like they conducted a taste <laughs> test. So you know, this wasn't scientific. This is some dude in a lab coat being like, all right. I'm going to drink this stuff now. Like, now, Do you think it was a scientist that tried it out? Or was it like most of the people who worked at the nuclear test site are – they're not, they're like engineers. They're they're construction workers. They're they're not scientists in lab coats. They're, they're people who move dirt from one place to the other. They drill holes. Do you think they were the ones to drink it? Because they, were, they would probably have the more discerning palate. Oh, absolutely. And especially if it's PBR. They're like, hey, you guy who's moving dirt over there. Yo, dude, you want to make an extra five bucks? Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Eric, would you like this job? Uh, no, Tim. I would not. <laughs> Actually, I want to go back to the uh, the beer, though, because the more I drink this, the more I like it. I'm so mm -hmm. still so pleasantly surprised by it, and I'm really starting to get a lot of the uh, kind of fruity notes through what you would expect a beer named after the Bikini Atoll would be. But what I'm kind of curious for you guys that are nuclear experts, how well does this actually appropriate some of the nuclear themes within the beer? So uh, when I first bought this can, I will be honest, I bought it. It said Bikini Beer. I bought it at the, the Golden Knights hockey game, and I brought the can over, and I sat it down, and I turned it, and I started to read the label, and I said, oh my gosh, they're just talking about Bikini Atoll. You thought they were talking about the bathing suits, didn't and, you? And I was like, that's enough to get me yeah. to buy a beer, uh, and it was also it was pretty cheap for, the, for an outside beer and everything. So I was surprised that they had it, and I thought, why? There's no need for this. But it's the idea, the very guy who created the bikini itself named it bikini because of the bikini atoll because he wanted a quote-unquote explosive like marketing potential it was it was going to destroy everything you had previously conceived of for swimsuit wear so they wanted to appropriate that so there's there's a there's like two levels inception yeah. level of appropriation there's appropriation of nuclear history to develop the bikini and then on top of it you have the beer company appropriating that history for their own i i really loved that level and it's such a it's yeah. It's the perfect level. It doesn't make me think about like all of the people who were affected by nuclear testing and radiation. Like that certainly is a problem. But the beer itself just makes it kind of an interesting little bit of history as you're reading the can. Back to the whole pulling a hundred people on the uh, on the streets question. If you pull a hundred people on the streets about the bikini, how many of them would actually know that the bathing suit was named after the nuclear test site? 
Probably very few. Yeah, that would be that family feud would be like twenty. Right. Zero. Yeah. That, zero. I mean, like, I, yeah. Like you said, right? Like, you were, were at the game. You looked at the can. You bought it. Bikini, right? Like, you didn't think bikini age all. Like, mm. at all. Well, I, I can we just point out how the when you say the word bikini to Tim, the first thought is <laughs> nuclear test, not something else. <laughs> not it's just boobs. great. It's great. <laughs> I mean, hey, man. The, the, the guy loves science. It's, it's, it's a fun topic. Look, I have to pay off all these student loans. Uh, I need to justify it in my head somehow. All right, so our next concoction is the Smash Bomb Atomic IPA by Flying Monkeys Craft Brewery in Ontario, California. From the the brewery uh, website, here's how they describe. Did you say Ontario, California? Did I say? I, I tried to say. That. <laughs> I, I, I believe you did. Either that was the beer talking, or that was your uh, proximity to it and your California bias so showing. It, my there. brain was saying, "Don't say California. Don't say California." <laughs> This, All right. this is how dedicated Tim is to science. We are now six beers deep, and oh, it's showing. All right, so while Tim composed himself, I'll read some notes from the brewery. So it sounds like this is just a uh, classic IPA exploding on, onto the Ontario craft beer scene as our province's first real hop-forward IPA. Smash Bomb Atomic represents our maniacal test in assaulting a beer with hops at every possible stage of the brewing process. Uh, flaring with a barley-controlled concoction of citrus, centennial, and cascade hops, we give warning: this brew's fallout runs you. This brew's fallout ruins you for lamer beers. So yeah, I'm, I'm expecting classic IPA here. <laughs> Lots of bitterness, uh, tons of hops. Um, Gabe, how do you feel about IPAs? I I have no problem with IPAs. Tim is Tim is riling me up now because I have this thing that I say that every beer is an IPA now. Because I just feel like IPA has dominated beer styles, and there's so many beers out there, and it just feels lazy that all these breweries just come out with IPA this, IPA that. I like to see some other beers. When I'm in the mood for an IPA, I love a good IPA, but yeah, I like to have some more choice when I'm going to beer stores. Yeah, I will say we're starting to see a trend away from them, which is a good one, and I love IPAs, but you're right. That seemed to be, especially going back five or six years ago, as so many craft brewers are starting up. That was such a big focus, and let's be honest, the real reason is they're easy to brew. Yeah, and they don't take up a lot of time in the in the uh, in the cask in the fermenters. They can run it through pretty quickly. You don't have to have dedicated like if you make a sour, you have to have a dedicated fermenter for that, and they don't take as long. If they're not very good, they don't sell well. They can switch over to something else. It makes a lot of sense commercial, you know, production wise. Okay, so and the first thing I'll mention just off the nose here. I mean, I'm I'm I know I'm already already gonna like this beer because it. It doesn't smell just like hop. You can smell some biscuity kind of maltiness. And this is my problem with IPAs is that people will just use a, a crappy base and just add a lot of hops to it to make it taste like a good beer. This you can smell that they actually spent some time on the mash bill, I think, and uh, and did something nice. So I'm looking forward to this. So uh, my observation after shoving my nose into this glass, um, it smells warty. Like wart, right? Yeah. And for those who are not experts in beer brewing, wort is not like a wort like you think on a frog. It's like when you start brewing the beer before you actually before it becomes yeah. beer in the middle of the process. It does before have you put that, the yeast to it. Yeah, it smells like what your yeah. apartment would smell like when you're home brewing, hmm. which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a little bit different than most IPAs when they put some hops in there to really give it that hoppy nose to it. The beer can here um, at the top of it it says "man-made!" exclamation mark "madness crafted!" exclamation mark "barely under control." exclamation mark and has a big old picture of hops on here uh it's got 72 ibus uh which is you know it's pretty good 
I like this a lot. This is pretty good. I did not expect to like this as much. Uh, I'm going to let Will describe the can for this one because it's actually quite a series of concoctions. And I'll put all of the images for the cans and stuff on our website, supercriticalpodcast.com. And you can see all the different pictures of what we're talking about here today. Yeah, so this is this is pretty fun. Um, like there, uh, there's the brewery with like a, a dark blue background. They've kind of made it look a little bit like Halloweeny, and I'm I'm pretty sure that they were going for like the Wizard of Oz theme here, right? Like the flying monkeys, mm-hmm. the Wizard of Oz. Like that's that's the vibe I'm getting from it. Um, the actual Smash Bomb Atomic IPA. That's kind of written in like Scooby Doo ish font, right? Like that's. It looks like old movie monster posters yeah, from like the 50s, yeah. which was, I have a book over here called like the Atomic Age Cinema, and it's got the, the brewery, and it appears to be either a mushroom cloud or at least some sort of gas expl- ex- ex- leaving that's like greenish gas. An explosion of hops. I mean, that's what it looks like. like if you look at the edge of like that greenish cloud, right? They're all kind of like oh, buddy. Yeah. yeah, they're hops. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Also, I just noticed that there is a sub logo for this brewery. Normal is weird. No, I, I like the I like the logo. I like the theme. Like they're just going all in on the nuclear theme with this. They're not trying to like. There's no pretension that like, oh, we hosted this one scientist who had this weird history and obscure. They're just like, <laughs> they're like, this is we're just going all out on hops on this beer, and that's why we're tying it in. I like it's like no shame. I I just I like that. So, so this this might be me and Tim. Like I, I this this might go for you too. But like I just I really like the uh, yellow and black border. Like the. The emer- like for uh, those of you who can't actually caution see what we're seeing, yeah, the caution tape, the emergency like coloring, so to speak. I think it's, it's, this almost uh, looks like a hot sauce. Like you could see a hot sauce bottle with this kind of like smash logo on bomb. It. Yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I would eat the stuff out of that hot <laughs> sauce. Excellent. Yeah, this is a uh, wasn't one I was uh, I was gonna think I was gonna like. Uh, I actually got this when I used to live in the same apartment complex as Gabe. There was a pizza place. Uh, that had a really nice fridge of kind of hard-to-find beers and craft stuff that they would import, and this happened to be there. So I bought four cans of it. So actually, it might have been the first one I got for the for the beverage uh, podcast here. Uh, yeah, I like this one quite a bit. Let's go around and rate it, what we would uh, rate the taste, how well it appropriates, and our pairing experience. Let's go around the room, start with Gabe. All right, on taste, I don't know. I give this a four, maybe a five. It, I, I'm really enjoying it. On the nuke notes, like I said, I think a four on the nuclear theme, it solidly just commits to to what it's trying to do. I'd say this is a good happy hour ground zero for me. Yeah, I'm I, I could I could be drinking this for, for many years and, and probably not get bored of it. Or at least fifteen minutes before the bomb lands, right? Um, so this is this happy hour ground zero. Yeah, this could be the you know, one of the last things I drink and I'd be pretty happy with it. Good good all around flavor, good hops, good malt, everything. I'd be happy. I would probably go with a, a three and a half on this. One thing that I'm starting to notice here is it's not so much of an American IPA as, as it is an English IPA, hmm. uh, which are usually a lot more malt forward, yeah. um, not as hop forward as a lot of uh, American IPAs will be. You know, it is from Canada. Maybe they're they're taking more of the uh, the, the British uh, theme to an IPA than you would here in the U.S. Um, Nuke notes, I would probably give it a four. Um, I love this bottle. I'm kind of curious to see what of uh, the um, the imagery on this bottle is from the Flying Monkeys Brewery and how much of it is specific to this actual beer. Um, because it's kind of a mix of the both. It's it's a really cool looking bottle. I'm actually going to save this bottle cap and uh, and add this to my map of ones that I have from from across the U.S. It'll probably go in like northern Minnesota. It's close enough, right? Well, this was it's it imported by beverage company in Canton, Ohio. Okay, yeah. there we go. 
goes in Ohio. In terms of my pairing experience, I would also go uh, happy hour ground zero or happy ground zero hour. Um, and I would be doing this at an English pub. Um, so I feel, feel like this is a very, again, English style beer. Excellent. Well, go to the pub and wait it out, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I I really enjoy the taste on this. Um, I, I, I give it a four on taste. Uh, nuke notes, um, I give it a five. Like, And I don't know, like it just it does it for me like i really like the label they don't like gabe was pointing out it's not pretentious trying to like link it to a specific scientist and stuff they're just like this is kind of like a fun beer and it's got some dark yeah so, so here was the thing too with the other beers that we've tried so far right like they clearly tried to appropriate and make it in like a a clean sanitary package yep not this one not this one. This yeah, label this is kind of like scary, horror, yeah. like like Timothy was pointing out, right? It's like an old horror movie. So they kind of like embrace the like the dark aspects of nuclear weapons in a fun way. And for me, that's what get, gets me through the day at my job, right? Having a sense <laughs> of humor about some really dark stuff. Like we're all probably going to die because Donald Trump controls them all. <laughs> but hey, it's a fun job. So yeah, that, that's that fits the happy ground zero hour pretty well. I actually said render safe bender because I oh. can see myself sipping on this beer while I'm sweating, trying to figure out which wire <laughs> I want to cut. It's like, yeah, that's I don't know that that does it for me. Although if you're mentioning Donald Trump owning all the uh, the keys to our uh, our nuclear weapons, you might go with pushing the button on this one. That is, uh, yeah, that's a good point actually. I'll uh, I don't know. Can I do like half one, half the other, like double double it on this one? I think I think well the judges 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 have allowed it. All right, sweet. These are suggestions, not rules. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, Ru- rules are meant to be broken. I'm just throwing that out there. Perfect. So now, since we have to make this an educational experience, we can't just drink all day. Boo, boo. <laughs> Let's talk about beer versus water after a nuclear war. There's a lot of water in beer. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> Mostly water. So, according to a quote in a 2012 article in Live Science. Uh, Rico, Rico, uh, Henning, how would you say it? Rico or Rico? W- Rico, Rico, Rico Henning, an assistant professor of physics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, contends that beer in bottles or cans might be more dangerous than a bottle of pure water in a plastic bottle. Why is that, Tim? <laughs> Thank you, Gabe. Uh, Henning says that a nuclear explosion puts a tremendous amount of neutrons puts out a tremendous amount of neutrons, and neutrons can transmute elements and make them radioactive. Metal cans, silicate bottles, and beer can have picked up coppers and other contaminants in the brewing process are all much more susceptible to holding on to radiation than pure H2O and carbon-based plastic. But since most water sources are contaminated anyways, with radiation-drawing substances like chloride and potassium, Henning says the real problem would be trying to find a purely pure water. So if a bomb were to go off nearby, Henning would say, I would go for the purest source of water you can find that's stored in a plastic bottle, beer. I would probably not drink Boo. under any circumstance. Can I, say, can I say that's the most disappointing thing I've heard and most depressing thing all day? Oh. <laughs> I will also point this out. Water is good and all, but it won't make your problems go away like beer will. There we go. He didn't factor that into it. All right, so let's go on to our next one. We only have three left here. Uh, the next one is one of my favorites. It is Nuclear Nugget IPA by Licking Hole Creek in Virginia. Gabe, why don't you read what the website says while I open up these, which are another beers and cans. 
Sure. So, uh, all right. So the way website says uh, the nugget is about to drop. Nuclear Nugget Imperial Honey IPA is a delicious hop libation. It's not delicate or subtle. What it is is a hophead's dream fulfilled. Nuclear Nugget explodes with flavor. Notes of citrus flowers from the centennial hops and strong herbal and spice notes are added from Nugget hops. The fallout is somewhat subdued through the generous additions of local Virginia honey. Proceed with caution. The hour draws nigh. What is the hour draws nigh? What's that a reference to? Is that some nuclear thing? I think it's just the hour of the end of the world or the bomb coming down. I don't really think it's anything particular. Will, do you think yeah, that's something? I, I mean, it's, it's like a fatalistic thing, you know? Like, when, when the hour draws nigh, you know, it's, it's yeah. like very dramatic, yeah. gotcha. right? Gotcha, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm excited. This is, I, I'm I'm expecting this is going to be a big IPA. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. So I like I like this one quite a lot. Uh, before we talk about the can a little bit here, uh, I want to talk about a phone interview that I had with Chris Cotiza, uh, uh, who handles operations and marketing for the brewery. Uh, he called me right as he was about to get on an airplane to go to Scotland for a beer festival. So I appreciate the fact he had a chance to chat with me here. Uh, I asked him some of the similar questions, uh, what I asked other breweries, what prompted Lickin' Hole Creek to select nuclear imagery for the can label and for the name itself. Uh, he said that the beer was brewed about five years ago. Uh, the brewery is also a farm, and the farm grew a variety of hops called Nugget Hops. So when they gave that idea of what the beer was going to be to their graphic designer to come up with something pretty cool for the label, the graphic designer thinks a lot like I do. He really likes alliteration and thought that it was kind of funny to be like nugget, nugget, nugget. What's rhymes with nuclear, nuclear nugget. And thought that was kind of cool. Made up a little uh, can here. The There's a radiation symbol on the can that made up of hops. Uh, so you have little hop buds here to make it look like the radiation can. The whole can itself is green. The, the background is a similar like hive shape, so that kind of draws both on the honey as well as, maybe this is not intentional, but I see the, the chemistry symbol of trying to connect various chemical elements and molecules together. Uh, it says nuclear nugget in very fancy italic print. He said that the, the in their very gentleman farmer style, they thought it was a, a funny little joke. Uh, so that's how nuclear nugget IPA was formed. And they clearly embraced it when they have the description with all the puns uh, having to do with, with nuclear things. So, any um, is there any Virginia connection to nuclear here? Or is this purely they just picked uh, they just picked nuclear as the theme for this beer? I think it's just they came nuclear themes because they had nuclear hops, because they had nugget hops, and nuclear nugget was a pretty cool alliteration, and they went that way. So I don't think this one tried really at all to to draw any sort of history or any of those things. It was just from the ingredients up as opposed to uh, the pun down. And this might be because uh, I'm a little bit of a wonk, but it, Nugget Hops, like it kind of, uh, I make the connection in reference to Little Boy, but. Huh, what's that? Nugget, Little, I, I don't know. Huh. I'm just, yeah, it, like in, in my mind, I, I see that connection, but you know, I that might that, be digging a little bit too deep. I think that's mostly because of the previous seven drinks that we've had. <laughs> that, that is also entirely possible. I like that. Well, I also asked him what the response has been like from drinkers uh, to the label in the can. Uh, he says that people are really attracted to the logo, the very simple design. It's, you know, very minimalistic. Um, it grabs the eye, which I think is something that's super important for someone who is not just trying to make things that taste delicious, but also to sell them, to make sure that people will buy them. Uh, there's so many different types of beers out there. You want to make sure that yours pops. 
I, mean, I, 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 th I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, like, if you think about it, you know, I, I would say that probably like 5% of people are probably like that buy wine are wine connoisseurs, right? Mm -hmm. That really know what they're looking for. Most people go off of the label. Like what, what, what the description is. Sure. Like some people might pick it up and r actually read it, but most people will just take one look at this. And this is kind of, it's a very nice, sleek, pretty logo, you know, it's, um, so it used to be in bottles. So when I had this the last two years, it was yeah. in bottles. It's the first year they've done cans, which supposedly makes it last longer too. Did they use the like same lime green color scheme that same this one does? Yeah. Interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really like it. Like the kind of like honeycomb like pattern in the background and uh, the atomic symbol that's made of hops. Like, it's, it's clever. It's pretty good. So if anyone else likes Nuclear Nugget, uh, we'll talk about the beer here in a second. But it's currently seasonal. But they're looking to make it a year-long beer, including getting more honey that they make from uh, hives actually on the farm. Uh, you can look for it in most of Virginia, east of Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania, central New York State, as well as London, Paris, the Netherlands, and potentially Ontario, Canada. Or California. <laughs> yeah. So what do you guys think about this beer? It's it's a heavy beer. Yeah, it's a big one. It's 10.5% alcohol by volume. Yeah. It's got Magnum hops, got the Centennial hops, got the Nugget hops. I like it. I mean, for the style, I think it's good. I mean, if you're in the mood for a big Imperial IPA with heavy body and heavy hops, um, I think it does a good job. I thought the honey added some nice sweetness to it. I'd probably rate it a solid four. Maybe three on the nuclear theme. I mean, they also, similar to last beer, they kind of, you know, there's no other connection. They just pick this theme and roll with it, but don't really commit as much as the uh, the other guys, but do an okay job. And I think, for me, this is a pushing-the-button beer. Like, it's it's a big beer. I, if I need to really, if I really need to get, like, psyched out to do, to would you, end the Would world, you say that it's a bigly beer? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, very important. Um, so, like, yeah, if I need to psych myself out to destroy the world, this would be a good one. Eric? I'm, I'm going to go solid four as well. You know what this beer really reminds me of is uh, Hop Slam out of Bell's Brewery in Michigan. Um, it's uh, yeah. that, from, that from you is a pretty big uh, recommendation. Yeah, that is a really big recommendation. I love Hop Slam. I will say that they've kind of like waxed and waned from the quality of the beer as it's always brewed in, in small batches every year. Um, and even the can looks very similar too. It's got the, uh, the neon green it is a lot of themes there. And the big thing is it's a big beer. It's got honey. It's brewed with honey, similar to Hop Slam. The one thing that's a big difference here, I think the honey comes through a lot more. I think there's big, big honey notes in here that I think definitely overtake the hops. Um, I do like hoppy IPAs that are kind of well-balanced with some sweet flavor, too. I think the honey kind of goes a little bit further in terms of covering up the hops. So I really like to use honey to carbonate my beers. Instead of the regular mm, sugar, because sugar, yep. uh, it's got a little bit of a different taste to it. It's hard because you have to measure the honey exactly right. If it's too little, it won't carbonate too much. Your bottles will explode. It's almost a little bit like tickling in the dragon's tail here. You have to make sure you get it just right. Otherwise, you're in for some bad situation. Uh, but I appreciate the honey notes quite a bit. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. I wouldn't even say notes. Like, there's definitely a lot in this beer. Um, in terms of the nuclear themes, I think um, certainly uh, there's a lot on the can with the, uh, the radiation symbol. I'm not quite sure if they're kind of trying to play it up a little bit more than some of these other ones that are probably a little more closely tied to uh, to nuclear issues. Um, I'm going to go pushing the button as well. I will say probably this might be the type of beer at 10.5% and in a big can that 
You may accidentally push the button when you're not supposed to. <laughs> you might hear something from someone and misconstrue like, oh yeah, fire away. So I don't know. I would I would drink this beer with caution if you're in charge of the nuclear football. Keep this beer away from Trump. <laughs> I, I thought I was hitting the snooze button. Uh, Will, you, you, uh, you like this one as well? I do, but I don't think as much as you guys. Um, and like, so we, 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 the honey was mentioned by everybody here. I think the honey... And the malts are too overwhelming for me, like, to the rest of it. it. Like, it makes it a little bit just, like, too strong. Like, I still have, like, the honey and the malt taste in the back of my mouth, like, minutes after I had my last sip. So I put it as a three on the taste scale. The new, the new themes, I, I th- like, it's it's a very pretty can, but that's kind of, like, all it brings to the table, right? Mm. There's, there's no real history. There's no connection there. So I just put it at a three, like, mi- you know, mi- middle of the scale. In terms of, uh, you know, the nuclear experience pairing, um, fallout outside. Like, you know, it's it's a beer hmm. that I would be like, yeah, you know, I could, I could have this while the particles of fallout are showering down all around me. Like, yeah, that's, um, it's all right. I, I could, I could go with that. I would, I, I think this would be, that's a good one too, because probably bees won't survive too long once the fallout starts to land and kill all the flowers out there, right? So you want to enjoy the honey while it lasts. Bees are not as hardy as ducks. <laughs> exactly. Atomic bee, uh, some sort of joke there, but I'll work on that one. Or a horror movie plot. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our second-to-last beer here. And this one I'm putting in here because I want to show that I'm a fair and kind evaluator. You know, I'm super critical for sure, but I also uh, want to be fair. So I'm going to put one of my own beers up to the panel. So here's what I've got here. Cold War Brew. The beer is a cream ale with cold brew coffee. Put in right before I bottled. It's 4.59% alcohol by volume. I kind of like this beer, but I want fair and honest judgments from you all. So see what you guys think about it. Yeah, you're putting yourself out there, man. This is this is brave. I think never before done on any <laughs> podcast ever. This is incredible. Unprecedented, really. It's like if I make my own nuclear movie, and now I have to have uh, people listen to it. This is the closest I'll probably get to it. So as Tim uh, as Tim opens the uh, Grosh top bottle and uh, and gives it a pour, I guess I'll you know I'll ask him to describe what with the tasting notes from the other brewery. If you were going to write tasting notes for this beer uh, and start selling it commercially, what what would you say about this beer? In the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union must remain vigilant because in a world of mutually assured destruction, any mistake. That could be caused potentially by maybe not being awake enough, you know, being a little sleepy on the trigger. You have to remain awake, but you also want to make sure you enjoy the finer things in, t- in life. So you want to combine your beer, your cream ale. And of course, this is an American-style cream ale, not some Soviet-style Russian cream ale, something you get on the other side of the Iron Curtain. This is an American cream ale mixed with caffeine, with cold brew coffee. Put those two things together, you remain refreshed, vigilant against all things you need to worry about in the Cold War. That's how I would pair this together. Yeah. And I think uh, my label would have some kind of, maybe the imagery from the movie Failsafe, if anyone else has seen this. Uh, It's got the president in a bunker on a phone with the premier from Russia, and they would have that beer drinking it while that negotiations were happening at the same time. That's what I would put together there. Or imagine Dr. Strangelove, they're all drinking this around the, uh, the war room. I will say this, though. So, uh, like, what you just ended with there, like, 
I have not seen a single alcoholic, really any commercial product mm. linked to Dr. Strangelove. And I think that's a great hook. Like it's it's a classic movie, right? Like more so than any other nuclear theme movie. I mean, uh, other than, you know, like a Mission Impossible Fallout right now, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to fade away. That's that's going to go away. Dr. Strangelove has been with us since 1968? I think 63, 64. Yeah, 63, 64. So... The staying power of that movie is amazing, and nobody's tapped into that nostalgia for commercial purposes, hmm. which is, in America, absurd. Maybe I'll, I'll call it uh, Dr. Strangelove, or how Gabe learned to stop worrying about IPAs. Yes! Lo- do it! <laughs> do it! And love the hops. That's great. Um... No, I I gotta say, man, this is this is pretty. I, I I'm this is very unique. I mean, when when you think about coffee beer, wow. you think about dark stouts and porters. Um, to do coffee and a a light beer, it 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 does it kind of works. I mean, I I don't know if I could drink this. This couldn't be like a daily drinker for me. This is more of a specialty thing. Um, but no, I I think it's a really cool. Um, it's a cool idea, and and it I think it just works. If anything, maybe a little too strong on the coffee on the flavor, and you need to dial that in a little bit. But no, it's a very cool concept. I like it, man. So to be fair, I used to do the heavy stouts with with lots of coffee. I would actually put coffee beans marinated in Kahlua on to the in the primary for fermentation, maybe secondary fermentation. This one, I just mixed the coffee cold brew into it. And my target audience for this one was my wife, Jennifer, who is a very heavy coffee drinker. That's a niche audience right there, yes. an N of one. <laughs> <laughs> so I would, if this was commercial, maybe draw it back a little bit. But, I, you know, I know who my primary customer is. And I will say that's been a new trend that I've seen in the uh, craft, beering, uh, craft brewing industry is a lot of coffee going into beers you wouldn't think coffee would go into. So things like pale ales, blonde ales, things like that. I really like this trend. Can't say I've ever bought a six-pack of that before. I've usually seen it at breweries. I'll get it as part of a flight. This is pretty close to it. I agree. It's probably a little too heavy on the coffee. I'm sure Jen loves that. And <laughs> well done. Keeping those uh, those husband points going there. Um, I would say, yeah, if you're making this for a more mass audience style, back the coffee a little bit. But well done, Tim. This is a really good beer. Thank you. I completely agree with everything that you just said. <laughs> well, Wait, no. Did I say agree? No, I meant disagree. Uh-oh. You ah. like it? Oh, here we go. No, because this is the favorite beer of the ones that we have tried so far. I thought this was oh. amazing. Oh, um, I think it's I, it's nice. It's light. It's quote-unquote, uh, as they like to call it in the industry, crushable. Hmm. Um, like the, the coffee does come through like a little bit strong. But, I mean, I think that's just preference. I like it. Other people might think it's a little bit overwhelming. I guess it's like the honey, right, like that we had in the new, uh, the nugget beer. Um, but no, I think this is really, really good. This is definitely um, a five for me oh, on the wow. taste scale. Because of your wonderful description just now, I will give it a five on the new notes as well. Well, here's what's interesting about that. So I needed a name for the beer. I was about to – I have my, my uh, Word document where I create my – print out my labels. Uh, and I, I was like, I need a label. I need this now. I was about to bring it to a party that Gabe and I were going to be at. Uh, so I was like, I need to label these things. And I couldn't come up with a name. And cold, I kept thinking cold brew, something with cold brew, cold brew. Obviously, what do I think of? Cold war. So cold brew, cold war just kind of came right out of that. And it wasn't initially planned on being a beer where I would name it after nuclear things. So it's kind of similar to the nuclear nugget where it came out of whatever the ingredient was up as opposed to what I've done for other beers where I've named them after nuclear themed things. 
That's starting from the beginning. That's a wonderful lie there, Tim. I think you really were just one beer short for this podcast and want to make sure you tied <laughs> it into nuclear themes somehow. That's harsh. <laughs> but I, I, I will say this, man. If you bottled this and this was available commercially, this would be in, um, I would say, like my top five. This is really wow. good. It's pretty terrific. Well, I'll send you away with one of those. How would you pair this together? I would, for me, this is a render safe vendor to make sure that my, my nerves are calmed. I have my caffeine intake and I can cut the wire that I'm looking for. Yeah, agree fully. I was about to say the same thing. Render safe bender all the way. Um, I might go fall out outside. Uh, again, going back to the whole being able to drink something for a little while, um, really kind of a, a nice, drinkable, easy beer. This is really good. Yeah, I'm actually in the fallout outside category. Just like, I, I really enjoyed it. Like, Perfect. it would uh, put me in my happy place. What better to have? Well, fallout is raining around all around you. So let me take you out of your happy place here. Uh, this is what I promised, now that everybody's had a, a sip or two, an unrelated conversation about radium-laced beverages. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> all right, so when radiation first started to appear in science and in popular culture and understanding in the 1900s, the early 1900s, uh, it was all the rage. Wonders were described and attributed to radiation plus some other household product. You could wear pendants made of radium and your arthritis would go away. You could drink radon water and you'll feel 20 years younger. So much of this kind of snake oil radiation industry, unfortunately, I guess, or fortunately, was made up of companies that promoted fraudulent products that didn't actually have the level of radiation that they promised. And apparently that's what the precursors to the FDA were most concerned about. Not the products that actually were radiation laced, but the ones that weren't promising what they were labeling. Well, it's, it's false advertising. So it was all about that. According to a story in Popular Science magazine, this led the U.S. government to, to crack down on these companies for selling products that weren't truthful, but not regulating the more dangerous and deadly ones that actually were radiation laced. So here's an example. Bailey Radium Laboratories of New Jersey offered $1,000 to anyone that proved that it's, quote, certified radioactive water sold under the brand name Radithor did not have the amount of radi radium that it, anthorium, radium anthorium that it claimed. Here's the thing. Radithor had just as much radioactivity as it advertised. One gentleman, uh, Eben Byers, a well-known industrialist, a playboy, uh, he would drink three bottles a day and died a gruesome death in 1932. The Wall Street Journal had an article that had a headline that said, the radium water worked fine until his jaw came off. This forced the newly formed FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to regulate, quote, radioactive health products to prove that they were safe and effective. And of course, this led to the collapse of the radiation health industry. Two points on this. Uh, one, you probably should have used, uh, save this seg segment where you're talking about Radithor for earlier in the podcast mm. before we've had about seven or eight beers at this point. Because <laughs> uh, uh, that's not an easy word to say. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why I asked uh, all those questions to people, the breweries, like do people associate radiation with your beverage? Because that's what I got questions about when I would ask friends who were in the nuclear industry about this podcast. They said, oh, so does your nuclear-themed beer have radiation in it, right? There used to be. Yeah, and I will say thank God for the FDA. We're now talking about a, a policy area that I focus on, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, it's a good agency. Uh, we should make sure that we support them more. 
Excellent. Will, you said you actually read the Wall Street Journal article in preparation for this podcast? I, I did, and it absolutely blew my mind. So um, to, to would go— you say, Would you say it blew your jaw off? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, it's, it's completely wild. So um, I, I read the article— and uh, what Timothy's description did not do it justice. I mean, so basically, this this guy, even Byers, he's an industrialist, uh, semi-pro golfer, pro golfer, actually, not semi-pro. Um, he's a bit of a woman's man. And so apparently this guy was feeling that his uh, precious bodily fluids weren't really performing as well as they should be. By so, the way, the Dr. Strangelove beer we make is definitely called Precious <laughs> Bodily Fluids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a Dr. Strangelove reference. Um, but anyway, so he, he goes to his doctor, he goes to a physical therapist. The phys- physical therapist says, oh yeah, you should you should try out this thing called uh, Radithor. Am I pronouncing yeah. that Radithor. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ra- Radithor. So this guy drinks three bottles a day, four to f- up to four to five bottles. He starts promoting it to his girlfriends, to people he golfs with, and it, he, he thinks it's the absolutely best stuff. And uh, after about a year and a half, he starts feeling not so great. Mm-hmm. And then the FDA starts getting called in to basically kind of check out this industry more and more. So they reach out to him to get testimony on like, hey, Radithor isn't that great. He could not give testimony because his bottom jaw had fallen off at the time. Like he had lost teeth. It's a, so there was Ooh. no testimony. They, the, the FDA guys that were sent to interview him basically just had to describe the dismal state this guy was in. In the Wall Street Journal article, they describe it as a gruesome death. And after reading the whole thing, that does not do it justice. I thought it was interesting that there was a brewery out there that not embraced that side of the history, but tried to draw attention to some of the a similar issue. So Radium City Brewery out in um, Ottawa, Illinois, was named after the Radium Dial Company in Ottawa in the 20s and the 30s, uh, where mostly young women were employed to paint watch numbers on your wristwatch to have them so that they were uh, would actually glow in the dark. They were painting basically with radium-laced paint. And in order to paint the very tiny numbers on the watch face, the women would, would take the paintbrush and they would lick it so that it would become a fine point. And while they were doing that, they were ingesting small doses of radium, uh, not some pretty nasty stuff, and making most of them fatally sick, or at least leading many to become fatally sick. There's a great book that if you want to read about this called Radium Girls, uh, where you can kind of learn about this history. Well, this brewery, one of the founders, their great aunt, worked at this particular factory. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little way. None of the beers are themed after that. They've got like spaceman-themed beers and this and that. None of them are nuclear-themed except for the name of the beer itself. Uh, so again, that's an example of a, a beer company who has tried to appropriate some of the history, but hasn't gone to the level of like the smash bomb IPA where they're like, hey, this is radioactive. Isn't it kind of crazy? It's more just, here's some history of the region. And this is what we're going to uh, pay tribute to in the course of our uh, brewing and manufacturing and things. So, so actually, I, I, I read that article, and I mean, yeah, like, uh, unlike most of the beers where they're trying to tap into this um, theme of, you know, nuclear being interesting, sensational, um, no, they were, like, it seems like they were uh, legitimately trying to pay homage 
um, to an era gone by and the sacrifices mm -hmm. that were unwittingly made by these women. Um, and yeah, no, I, I, I think that's great. Uh, I wish we had that beer in front of us and could like, actually like see what the label looks like. But no, that seems uh, like, like a, a, a cool thing to do. Yeah, it's pretty neat. All right, so let's uh, go to our last beer here. Uh, kind of what I'm thinking as our headliner because uh, part of the reason, the motivation for this particular episode was because I had seen that the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, which is, you know, there's a publication that comes out called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. I've written for it a few times uh, about uh, nuclear pop culture, sometimes about why Star Wars has nuclear themes in it, why Game of Thrones has some nuclear themes in it. Um, I've also written for about like video games and nuclear things. So I've, I have a little bit of fondness for, for the Bolton Atomic Scientists. They're the ones who have the doomsday clock that shows you how close you are to the end of the world. They collaborated with a really cool craft brewery in Chicago called Forbidden Root. A bunch of the proceeds of all of the different beer sales went to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. This, I think, is like in October of 2017. Um, I asked uh, Forbidden Root to send me some bottles since I didn't live in Chicago. And uh, Tori over at Forbidden Root sent me four or five cans. Pretty cool that we get to try that out today. So while we drink this one, I'm going to edit in some parts of a fun conversation that I had with Forbidden Root's founder, Robert Finkel, as well as the Chicago-based artist, Tony Fitzpatrick, who designed the label. Uh, so the quality of the audio in this one is a little rough because I don't think we got a really good phone connection, but it's a fascinating discussion about how the collaboration with the Bulletin came about, how the label was created, and what the brewery and the artist hoped the drinkers, kind of what they would be inspired by, what kind of experience would they have. And I think this is pretty interesting, so I'll put that in right now. When I saw this collaboration, I almost booked a ticket to Chicago to be there in August for the opening. <laughs> It was a big opening. It was a big opening. I think what attracted me to the idea of uh, atomic energy and the atom is that uh, the atomic child is really kind of my childhood. I mean, I, uh, I'm a child of the late 50s, early 60s, and, you know, uh, the atom was uh, the boogeyman in my childhood. You know, the nuns had... Uh, drills for us, you know, roll under your desk and put your hands over your head. And I found that image compelling, particularly the one with, uh, you know, the symbol for atomic power. I came to realize later, you know, in high school and then afterwards that we didn't know, you know, us, us atomic children, we didn't know the atom very well. Hmm. And I grew up uh, five miles from Fermilab. Oh, wow. You know, uh, yeah. yeah, and they had the Atom Smasher out there, and I would go out there and, and visit, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's it's really like walking into the setting of a Kurt Vonnegut novel, you know? I mean, it's, it's a very odd place. It is an underground, gigantic Atom Smasher. I, I began to hear all of the stories of the Manhattan Project in the basement of the University of Chicago. And then later in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the cloud of the atomic threat was always kind of over my childhood. I mean, I, I can't ever uh, forget the commercial that LBJ's people made when it was running for office, you know. Um, the Daisy ad? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the atomic bomb had already been used once in history. You know, the atom got a very bad name. And finally, my science teacher started clearing it up and saying, well, you know, you're made of atoms. In fact, all matter is made of atoms, and atoms aren't the bad guy. The imagery from science also, I found kind of haunting and poetic. And, then uh, hmm. you know, I honestly, to be completely frank with you, I kind of responded to the poetry of the atom, the poetry of the atomic age that was laden with peril and and odd kind of beauty at the same time, and and always the uh, very Catholic idea that you know life is ephemeral, it is finite, it will end. The the atomic sirens that would go off, the sonic booms, stuff like that. These were all things that came with the atomic age. It was like the sort of Damocles hanging over the whole culture. Mm-hmm. You know, we we did not know the atom very well. We did not know the possibility of it very well, and subsequently, we didn't know the the great uh, possibility for good that the atom presented as well. Yeah, it's been, there's been a long time connection between art and science, and specifically nuclear. You know, the the the, the, the doomsday clock itself mm-hmm. as a symbol. Uh, was produced by a, an artist and you know, stood the test of time in communicating you know, the state of play of nuclear you know, various dangers to humanity uh, around the world. And, you know, we, you know, the, the Bolton, the atomic scientists, you know, on which board I sat for six years, mm-hmm. uh, annually used that very powerful symbol to communicate where we were and why and, you know, a part of art is, is is the beauty or lack of beauty, and part of art is, is asking questions and provoking. Um, yeah, I mean, that symbol still shows up in my work a great deal. Yeah. Because it's still something that kind of haunts me. Because it's something that inevitably we kind of, as a body politic, wish we had better control over. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I'm a little bit curious. Maybe, Robert, if you can uh, walk me through a little bit about the, how the collaboration with the Bulletin came about. You know, I, I was on the board for six years on the governing board, and part of that experience was seeing the power of imagery uh, in communicating issues, uh, coalescing focus on the issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether it was the cover of when the Bulletin was printed, or whether it was the you know, visualization of quantification that communicate you know, the, the state of play and danger uh, around the world and being passionate about you know, the issue and the risks and having a, a place to communicate in a non-biased, non-partisan way the truth about uh, the state of play. I mean, don't forget, this was this board was you know, conceived and created by Einstein and Oppenheimer uh, in 1945 to make sure that the state-of-the-art information was disseminated every year mm-hmm. based on the technology that they had wrought. And so they were prescient in understanding that the world needed to know what was going on, and art is part of that communication. And was you know we were blessed to have you know met Tony and uh, collaborated in a number of uh, of years with him. Uh, it's really an entire line of uh, this New England Pale Ale, mm-hmm. uh, which is a a, a, a a new take on a, on an IPA that we we've gotten behind. Uh, and sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and it really makes uh, hoppy beer approachable because it's softer and and you know, it's, you know, it's more balanced in our opinions. Tony's image, uh, you know, when I saw that the the atomic child, which is his name for his piece, 
Hmm. Uh, we, you know, I, yeah, the bells went off uh, because a, it's a beautiful, cool label, and B, yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the the thing where both uh, Robert and my you know dog whistles kind of went off, and I, I had a guy bring me to for to Robert and said, you know, you should do some uh, artwork for some of these kids. And then when I met him, we became fast friends. You know, with uh, the last election and everything, I mean, and I think we're all a good deal more cognizant of our nuclear cash, the prolific and, and obscene uh, amount of weapons we have stockpiled. Mm-hmm. And um, every time we can make people just think a little bit about that, you know, while they're having a beer, I mean, maybe it'll resonate, you know? Hmm. Every little bit helps. You'd be surprised. Because I've had people stop me on the street and stop me in Forbidden Root and stop me at the openings here and say, what, what's this about? What, What is the Atomic Child? And I would tell them, well, it's you, you know, and it's me. We grew up in this age, and it's, it's something we, we must always be mindful of. I, I honestly think that with dialogue begins, you know, a pathway to knowledge. You know, it's a, science teaches us anything, it's that. Yeah, the, the imagery between, you know, you have the atomic symbol and the what look like balloons and the, the hair, all of those put together definitely are not the kind of imagery that I've seen on most of these cans. And it com- combined, especially combined with the passage on the right, really, you know, you're, as you're drinking this, you look at this, you have to reflect on not just one side of this issue, but... You know, you maybe get drawn to the idea of atoms for peace, which well, was the, like all those different pieces. Yeah, as well. the green, the green hair, the green hair speaks volumes. You know, yeah, uh, the green so, hair reminded me a little bit of the uh, the grape flavor of the beer as well. I don't think it was initially. Oh yeah, but... yeah, yeah. When you're having the conversation, drink a lot of that beer <laughs> <laughs> because it will definitely, it will definitely help you. You know, feel at least a little more at ease. The whole, the whole ideology behind craft beer is connecting with people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 and using that to do good. One of the things that surprised me a lot when I heard that there was a collaboration between uh, the Bulletin and, and Forbidden Root was that there wasn't a lot of imagery based around the, the Doomsday Clock. The obvious thing would be for me is to go there. Uh, so that's why I, I appreciated the fact that you know, the atomic child didn't necessarily lean on that so heavy. We we did that for a reason. I mean, um, yeah. You know, my friend John Resick used to edit the you know five minutes to midnight uh, publication, and I didn't want to hit the doomsday clock hard because first of all, it's kind of an easy image, and right. everything surrounding uh, the whole atomic age has been let's scare the shit out of everybody. You know, I wanted to find some. Uh, some middle ground and, and basically say that our whole past, I mean, Robert's, yours, mine, we're, we are atomic children. We're, we grew up in this age. Didn't want it to be the big bad boogeyman. I mean, after all, it's on a beer can and, you know, the last thing you want to do before anybody has even opened the goddamn beer is <laughs> bum them out, you know? Well, thank you very much. You're, you're both great men for uh, giving me the time tonight. Uh, to talk through some of these Hey, things. thanks for having us, man. One of the things I was wondering was if they were going to collaborate with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, why didn't they have the doomsday clock on it? And they were explicit. They didn't want to have that because it was too easy. It was too easy of a label, and it pushed the person who was looking at it too much into the boogeyman territory of imagery or new exceptions. I think one of the goals he had was that people would drink this beer, 
they would read the label, they would ask him questions, and they would uh, they would talk to each other about what what the atom meant to them, whether it was good in terms of maybe nuclear power, maybe it was bad because of the nuclear bomb. At least it was a discussion which a lot of people don't really think about. So I don't know. But let's drink it right now and see what we think about this beer. This is the first time I've had it, but I've been really enjoying this New England-style IPA. Gabe, do you have some information here on what... Sure. Um, so this is a hazy IPA, um, also known as New England-style. Um, so a little less bitter than a regular IPA and a lot more kind of juicy flavor, fruit flavor hops. Um, brewed with white wine grapes and a metric ton of hops, Citra, Mosaic, and Orbit hops. Uh, one might expect an explosion of bitterness, but instead a viscous and slightly sweet body slide into a complex dry finish that blooms like a mushroom cloud on the tongue. And uh, Eric, why don't you read the description on the can? Because there's like a little bit of uh, poetry on the can here. Yeah, this is interesting. This is where they bring in sort of the uh, the atomic themes into it a little bit as well. It says, she looked down Chicago Avenue and the homeless man called out to her. It is all atoms, everything you see. Even the dogs. He walked closer, and she smiled at him. He was tattered and wrinkled and possessed by a dizzy, joyful madness. In parting, he tipped his hat and told her, I've been to the river, now I'm going to the dance. He smiled, an atomic smile. That's a, that's a little deep and heavy, yeah. um, which does not at all fit this beer. Which is pretty light and um, yeah, joyful. It's very, yeah, it is, it is the summer of hazy IPAs. I feel like that's all I'm seeing now. Um, <laughs> that, that has been a, a new trend. They're really moving more towards the hazy East Coast, New England-style IPAs. So that juice really comes through here. It's got some notes of pineapple. I know we'll, we'll get into the, uh, the tasting notes a little bit, but this is a pretty standard but very well-put-together New England-style IPA. Yeah, I've, I've uh, really enjoyed um, the New England-style IPA. Gabe, what about you? Uh, you've been enjoying this side of uh, the, the New England-style IPA instead of the usual? Yeah, no. For all the reasons, I think it's something different, and I think it dials down the hops a little bit and forces the brewers to focus on other parts of the beer. I think I'm really enjoying this one. I think it's 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 super drinkable, uh, fits the style nicely, and I could really... I mean, for me, this is a solid five, not only on the taste but i think actually also on the theme i mean they've really gone all out on committing to like the nuclear theme of this beer pairing with the bulletin of atomic scientists um so for me actually this is a five on both counts uh i'm really enjoying this and um this is a happy ground zero for me i i mean if i saw that if i had 15 minutes left and i had to pick one um this would this would definitely be a very solid choice for me yeah, so uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is obviously very uh, involved in what I work in, as, as well as you, mm-hmm. Tim. Yeah, no, uh, I th- it ta- the taste is excellent, and it's funny. When I, if you talked to me like four years ago, I hated IPAs. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't like IPAs. It was like the the overwhelming hops like and the bitterness, like the bitter aftertaste, like kind of killed it for me. But... Like, gradually, I feel over the last couple of years, uh, to Gabe's point, everything is an IPA, right? Like, so, like, they, they like, the hops are down in this. The mm-hmm. juiciness is up in this. Like, greater floral taste. Hops aren't bad. It's just, like, you, you can't have them overwhelming, like, the very complex mathematical equation that it takes to make a good <laughs> beer. And this does it. Like, this is a good beer, um, 
it obviously has great nuclear connotations because of the the cooperation with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. So yeah, I'm I'm actually pretty much on board with Gabe on this one. I'll give it a five on taste. I'll give it a five on nuke notes. For me, this isn't a happy hour beer. This is this is a fallout outside beer. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, those are semantics, really. So uh, I think we're on the same page on this one. I think I'm going to give this one uh, a pairing with Nuclear Apocalypse because in the world where everything's bleak and grass is dead and and you're kind of wondering what's left of humanity, if I had access to one of these, I, I would be reminded of all things kind of that were good about the world that was left. The, the, the hazy IPA, the fruity flavor to it, kind of the complex notes, it would make me kind of sit for a second and remind myself of what world was like before things went bad. That's very interesting, though, because, you know, that kind of uh, contrast to the the Mad Max approach, right. right? Where everything is bad, screw it. I will drink whatever it takes. You know? rock, so, rock water. Yeah, rock water, radiated water, you name it. He's a very positive person. He's looking for those uh, little joys in life, which I think this beer would absolutely give you. Um, in terms of my scoring on it, I'm going to go uh, five on taste. I think all apologies, Tim. I really love your beer. I think this is the best one I've had today. This is a fantastically well put together beer. Um, going <laughs> going five on this. Um, nuclear themes. Um, I think they did a really good job. I still love that deep and sort of dark quote, which again does not at all fit the uh, the flavor profile of the beer. But it makes you think, uh, right? Yeah, and I, I don't I, know what you think about, but it makes you think. <laughs> it makes you think about something. Uh, I do like the uh, the can too. Like there's, it almost looks like this make a lot of good series of tattoos that are on that too. It's a, an interesting look. So Tony has done a couple different beers with the Forbidden Root Brewery. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is called Radio Swan, which is something I've also been trying to get my hands on. Um, so maybe if I get to Chicago, I'm going to check it out. But it's a very similar style. It seems to be Tony's style. He etches quite a bit. They have a similar line of, of beer cans. They're going to do more collaborations. That's really cool. Um, in terms of my pairing experience, I'm going to go Happy Ground Zero. Uh, happy, I can never get this one right. <laughs> I was getting them better earlier in the night. Ha- but, happy uh, Hour Ground Zero. Ha- ha- happy Hour. <laughs> happy, happy Ground Zero Hour. It doesn't really roll <laughs> off the tongue. Especially after a few beers. It really yeah. doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, but uh, no, I'm going to go with that one. If I had one beer that we've had today that, like, it we have 15 minutes left, and what do I want my last thing to have? This is probably it. Excellent. All right, well, you mentioned about what one you like the best out of today. So let's talk about our bunker beers, because we're all done today. Maybe there's one here that you would like to stock your fallout shelter in your home. Um, you know, sure, some people might uh, be very inclined to order one of these packages that a forward-thinking company in the 1960s sold, where they, for $400, you could have a survival kit. That would have like personal home shelter survival goods, bandages, water, that kind of boring stuff. But also a case of scotch, six cases of beer for uninvited guests, and six bottles of champagne for when the all clear signal is given out and you can leave your shelter. You don't have that kind of luxury. You have to pick one beer. Let's go around the room. Let's start with our uh, brand new guest here, Will. Which of these would you like or any other beer if you want to draw upon if you don't think these match? Because this is a pretty big, pretty big decision. I was a little hesitant, kind of like looking through the notes for this podcast and like the the lineup that we had, that I wouldn't really find anything that fit. Uh, good contenders were this last one, the Atomic Childs and the Bikini Beer. Hmm. However, my personal favorite is still All Day IPA, Founders Brewery. It's from Michigan. It's a great beer. 
um, if I was going into like if I had the money and the resources to have a shelter in the first place, there would be a pallet of all day IPA <laughs> waiting for me in that shelter. Because if stuff hits the fan, that's what I would want to drink for the next three years until the all clear is yeah. given. Their their oatmeal stout is really good. The founders one, yeah. Eric, what would you, what would you be uh, on their shelf? I don't know that I would go with a uh, uh, session IPA there because I'm also thinking about space wise. Like mm-hmm. you would require a lot of beer to put in there to, to stock it up to really give you a good buzz if you're looking at low ABV. So I want to go. I want to punch it up a little bit. I do like this Atomic Child as being an option there. It's at a 7.2, and it's a very good beer. I might go with Tim's beer. I, I might go with the uh, the Cold War Brew because I think it's an all-day type of beer. Drink one in the morning, wake up. It's got that coffee notes <laughs> in there. That's what I want when I wake up in the morning is a nice cup of coffee, and you can have that throughout the day. And I think it's an easy drinkable beer, but it's got the right amount of alcohol to keep you going. I think uh, Eric just wants to come back on the podcast. So you're just... I've learned that skill long ago. (laughs) So I just want to interject here because I think Eric brought up a really interesting point. And Tim and I were kind of talking about this earlier. Like, the beer that you want. So I picked All Day IPA because it's crushable. I can drink a lot of it. And I would probably want a pallet of it for the full three years or however long it takes for the all clear to come through. However, two weeks and three years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, tomato, tomato. And also I like the all day concept because you won't know what time it is anyways, because your clocks are going to be broken and no sunlight. Right. Right. But you know, they call it all day IPA because of the low alcohol content. Like you can go to a pub and well, pub it's an american beer but you could go to an establishment and drink it all day without getting too messed up so to speak however though i would counter with this like the the alcohol content like you know it's fine to have a beer that's a little bit low because that's why the good lord invented bourbon <laughs> right like you you're, you're you're mixing it i don't i don't know if other people feel the same but i feel like a low alcohol beer does serve a purpose yeah, but do I have bourbon in, in the fallout shelter? I'm not sure. I need a little more detail before I answer this question, <laughs> which I just heard about. All right, Gabe, what do you got? Um, I think of the beers that we've tried today, I'm really torn between the Atomic Child and the Atom Splitter. Um, I'd probably go with the Atom Splitter for my bunker beer. I just really love those English beers, so that that would be my that'd be my choice. With the Atom, the Atomic Child was also great. Of other beers, I'd give a shout out to. It's not made anymore, but Sam Adams made this beer called Noble Pills, which I really loved. And they stopped making it, and I was so bummed out because it was a Pilsner, which is a tough style to make with like all these great hops in it and really nice flavor and. I think they just stopped making it because people were all onto IPAs and, you know, they wanted to do other stuff. Um, so if I could have a time machine, I'd go back and buy a few cases of that and put it in my bunker. Uh, also, Old Speckled Hen, another English beer, which I love. That would be another candidate for my bunker. So that, that's just me. Uh, well, I appreciate the expertise demonstrated here, both nuclear and non-nuclear, uh, both beer-loving and kind of home-brewing. Uh, but now it's time to kind of move away from the more dark nuclear discussions, and we're going to transition over to our closing time thoughts. But before we get there, I want to play a little bit of a game. Shall we play a game? So this game was born out of the pure delight that I had researching this episode and coming across the website and the menu for the Atomic Ale Brew Pub and Eatery in Richland, Washington. Founded in 1997, 
It was named after and themed for the nearby Hanford nuclear site that held the first plutonium reactor. It's now decommissioned, but it was mentioned in the episode uh, that we did on the movie Special Bulletin. The owners and brewers of this particular establishment really share my joy of nuclear weapons history and gratuitous puns. You'll come across the nuclear-themed beers like Radioactive Rye, Atomic Amber, but, you know, you'll also come in to to enjoy the Geiger Counter Garden Wrap or the Fallout Fajitas. Delicious, right? So in honor of this special place, I suggest we play a round of the classic game, What's on Tap? I will say the name of a nuclear-themed beer, and you will tell me whether it is something I made up or something that's actually on the beer menu for the Atomic Ale Brew Pub and Eatery in Richland, Washington. I have 14 of them, so buzz in with your name, unless you're too buzzed to remember your name. Just say words or loud <laughs> things, and I'll, I'll know who was trying to say it. Uh, right answers get one point. Wrong answers get a negative one. The prize, this delicious bag of Warheads Chewy Cubes. Mildly sour, wildly sweet. So I like it. I like it. All right. Let's do it. First one, Oppenheimer Oatmeal Stout. Real or fake? Keanu Reeves. It's a good name. I mean, it's a a good name. Will, what do you got? Will you say it's real? Real. That is correct. Yes. It is a generous, dark malts, flavorful hops, and a dash of oatmeal. This crew favorite is full-bodied, full-flavored. All right, next one. Weapons-grade wheat. Real or fake? Gabe. Gabe, what do you got? I say real. That is also real. Uh, That is a New World wheat ale, leaning slightly towards the classic German style. All right. Next. The Enola Goza. Well. (laughs) Fake. Completely fake, made up, but I thought it's still a pretty good name for a beer. Next one. The Intermedium Range Missile. Real Air. or fake? Fake. <laughs> Egg. <laughs> correct, correct. I know your love for mead, so that sounds right up your alley. <laughs> yep. That one involved a little bit of background knowledge there, so I don't know if hopefully that was fair. All right, the fifth one. So we have a score here. Will's got two. Eric's got one. Gabe's got one. No one's gotten one wrong. Next one. The International Proton Pale Ale. Will. Fake. Sorry to hear that, Professor. This one is completely real. It is an international potpourri of hops from the United States, Europe, and Australia. Golden colored ale dominated by hops. Minus one for Gryffindor. (laughs) Oh, no. Yep, no more uh, butterbeer for you. (laughs) One, one, and one. Next, beta blocker bitter. Real or fake? Well, real. Correct. Try saying that name of this beer three times in a row. It may be hard to say, but it is enjoyable to drink. Bitter block of Ritter. <laughs> ABV, nope. 3.8%. All right, number seven. Hazy Mushroom Cloud IPA. Game. Real. Sorry to hear that, Professor. 100% fake. But, oh! but doesn't it sound delicious? It I does. Was, I was going to go fake because I feel like these have been on there longer than we've had a hazy IPA. It was, it was too many things. Yeah, it's too hazy soon. mushroom it's too soon, cloud. Yeah. yeah. But a mushroom cloud would be kind of hazy. It 
It would be. Yeah. But Maybe I'll submit these afterwards to. It wasn't marketing enough. Okay. All right. Next one. Plutonium Porter. Eric. Real. Excellent. Correct. Simple. The Simple. Exact opposite classic. Of the last one. Something yeah. you would serve your grandfather. <laughs> uh, a dark, full-flavored ale with a rich, roasted, slightly sweet malt and a mild hop finish. So we got Will with two, Eric with two, Gabe with bagel. Oh. Next. Next one. J. Robert Hoppensheimer. Gabe. Will. Ooh. I think Gabe. That was really yeah, close. First, yeah. Will was louder, but Gabe was quicker. I don't know what I'm going to say. I mean, say. louder is usually right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say fake, since we already had one Oppenheimer beer before. Excellent. Your logic is sound, because that is correct. Uh, it that is was a, a good name, though. J. Yeah. Robert almost Hoppensheimer. Yeah. I'm also glad you got that one. All right, that's one for Gabe. Next, Oktoberfest Sky. Will. Real. Sorry to hear that, Professor. Fake. But it is my mother's favorite movie, October Uh, Sky, which is not really nuclear, but it's Cold War, it's missiles, it's... What happened to Jake Gyllenhaal? Hall? Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. Yeah, Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. You know, he's, the porn he's, he's actor he's, who is trying to do Yeah, he's night, cra- he's night crawling around. Still anybody's game. We've got four more left. Next one. Ionizing Irish Red. Will. Will, what do we got? Real. Correct. Oh, it's such a long name. I thought it was fake. I know. I, I, that, I thought this one was fake when I read it. Uh, six unique grains. The flavor brings a balance. Balance of malt. No, no, I, th- I think you had it right. Balance. Balance. <laughs> Balance. It's, it sounds like a delicious beer. 4.1%. Will's got two. Eric's got two. Gabe's got one. Still anybody's game. Next one. Half-Life. half advising. Eric. Ooh. That was Eric. You think it was Eric? Everybody consensus? All right. I'm going to go real. Well done. Well done. Correct. It is an American-style Hefeweizen, refreshingly crisp, cloudy, and slightly, slightly sour. 5.2% ABV. Will's got two. Eric's got three. There we go. Gabe's got one. Next one. Amber Bach Scar. Will. <laughs> Gabe, what do you got? He has to answer all of them. <laughs> I say fake. This is too random a reference. Correct. It is completely fake, but you get the reference now, right? I, I do. After yeah, years of dealing with this podcast. Yes. So what? What is this one? Uh, well, Boxcar. <laughs> <laughs> Something is some nuclear weapon test. So the Enola Gay was the airplane that dropped the bomb over Hiroshima. Made that thing. The bomb that dropped the plutonium bomb. Was the made by Boeing. Yeah. That was in my crossword yesterday. The boxcar? No. Oh, the Enola Gay. So the boxcar was named after a pilot. But yeah, the boxcar. Will with two, Eric with three, Gabe with two. Last one, reactor core red. Will! All right, what do we got? Real or fake? Fudging real. <laughs> Correct. Yeah! Uh, I am retarded! Is there a tiebreaker? Uh, I think we're just going to have to split the bottle. or split, split, We're going to have to split the bag. I don't have a, a tiebreaker here. Congratulations, well done. Yes. Strange game. All right, so congratulations to Eric. Uh, let's do our closing time thoughts and discussion points here. I know we're pretty 
already toasted and we're going a little long. I've got some questions that I think would be interesting to to hear you guys' perspectives. Uh, so the first question I have is, I have trouble squaring this circle in my head. Like, the dangers and awful reality of nuclear weapons and then the fun that I enjoy from seeing all these puns and, and kind of interesting appropriations of history. What do you guys think about this? Because I know there's so many different types of, of beer out there with really, you know, sometimes names like an arrogant bastard or uh, kind of more gratuitous names. So there's when you buy beers, for example, as either a nuke person, Will, or as a non-nuke person, uh, Gabe and Eric, kind of what do you look for? Is this okay? Do you have to like justify the words that are on a label versus kind of the beer, the taste? What do you guys think about these kind of questions? So I guess I'll go first as a, a nuke person. Um, this is something that really like uh, came to the forefront of my mind about a year ago. Um, as I kind of alluded to earlier in the episode, like the way I get through my day, like we work on really dark stuff, you know, like, I mean, essentially, sure. um, the reality is that we, there are about 18,000 nuclear weapons in existence in the world right now. Um, most people have no idea that that is the case. Physicians for Social Responsibility uh, did this video contest where they polled a bunch of people and uh, they were like, so how many nuclear weapons do you think that the United States possesses? And the, rans- the, the answers ranged from zero to 50. Wow. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was it was absolutely shocking. So, yeah, like, fixing that reality every day, like, you do have to bring a kind of sense of humor to it. And I try to do that um, every day, both through the work in my office, like face-to-face with colleagues, um, but also through my Twitter personality. And I recently got some serious pushback from a colleague that accused me essentially of trivializing Hmm. what is otherwise a very dark and serious matter. And her kind of proposition to me was like, like, I understand that you're doing this as a sort of coping mechanism to have fun, but how do you think the Hibakusha would take this? And I said, I don't actually know. Because that the answer to that question depends on the personality of every single person, right? You know, like um, you have like the Monty Python humor, right? Where the dude is crucified and he's saying, always look on the broad side of life. I mean, that's that's kind of the but that's 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 kind of the the humor that I try to bring to this type of stuff. So I appreciate that. Mm But I know that some people don't, and for very good reasons. These nuclear weapons, more than anything else that mankind has ever created, does terrible, unimaginable damage to people, to human civilization. So it is easy to resort to this kind of eh, light humor, but at at the end of the day, it is really, really, really dark. And... I think the downside of our career path is is that nobody, even you and I, Tim, probably haven't even really grasped, like full on grasped what humans did 70 years ago and what that means. So for me, as someone who works in nuclear security, trying to make sure that nuclear material does not fall into the hands of bad actors uh, and trying to train people along those lines. And then when I complain about having to work on the weekends, like, yeah, if I worked on the weekends a little bit harder, maybe I would get a few more trainings done or done them quicker, a little bit better. Uh, it is hard to balance that life when you choose this kind of lifestyle. But I think it's interesting. I'm sure everybody who has whatever job they have, if you're a mechanic, you have to make sure someone's car works right so that the brakes don't fail so they don't die. 
right? There's an element to that. There's in, in Eric's job, making sure that uh, people get the right health insurance, that the uh, that you know, patients are properly represented. Like there's that element too. So I don't know if Eric, if you kind of feel a similar draw upon your energies and how you balance the the humor that you need to do in life to get through the dark moments. Well, I absolutely, absolutely do. And I think that there's also a key theme here is alcohol helps. <laughs> I think that certainly helps yeah, you get through the day. For, the, when you for those that abide, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and like with all of the, uh, um, you know, day-to-days of our life, I think, you know, enjoying beer responsibly really helps you kind of overcome some of the difficulties that you're having in a social, responsible way. Um, you know, the way that I would sort of, you know, answer your question, I'm going to take this much more pragmatically I think that's that they're, the the craft beering industry is kind of running out of names. Yeah, um, the industry has become so saturated. There's some great breweries that are doing great things, but it is such a big industry now, uh, which I'm very happy to see that they're really taking over the sort of Miller Coors Bud empire that we've seen. Um, so one of my favorite stories about sort of uh, the culture of craft beer and kind of how it fits in without the, within this area is a uh, um, story about a beer called. Um, uh, collaboration, not litigation. Um, mm. It's an ale that was brewed uh, by Avery Brewery in Colorado and Russian River Brewery in California. Avery, yeah, okay. and yeah, and Russian River is well known for yeah. their their Pliny yeah. the Younger, Pliny the Elder. Yeah. Um, the two of them both had a beer called Salvation, and it was you know back when they were brewing them, they were contained to very local regions where they were sold. But once both breweries started expanding outside of their areas. They start running into each other. And what you normally see in a lot of other industries is lawsuits and litigation. They're going to start coming in there. They're going to like push the other one out. Hmm. They're like, no, we're craft brewers. That's not what we do. So they came up with a beer that they called collaboration, not litigation. They brewed a beer together and they did that. So looking at it from the nuclear hit, I think it really is sort of like an in-your-face, draw-your-attention type of thing to the names, the labels, those type of things. You know, I'm sitting here drinking uh, another one of our Smash Bomb Atomic IPAs that we talked about with a really catchy, fun label. Mm-hmm. I think if I was walking through the grocery store, saw this in the, the cooler aisle, I would probably pick one of these up. It's a cool-looking beer. It's got a fun name. And I think a lot of the, uh, the breweries that are using Atomic Things are looking to do that. Some may try to really sort of shock you and then, then draw you in, read whatever description you have on the label. Or you can make it fun. I think it's a versatile theme that you can really play off the atomic themes, mm. whichever way you want to bring people into looking in more into your product. Well, pretty much anything that, that could be named or punned after a beer has probably already been done so. True. So I wonder if this nuclear trend is maybe just a reflection of the fact that everything's named after – beer is named after everything and everything has a beer name. But it seems like there are some examples of people that are trying to draw upon – either a serious take, a historical value, leaning on it for a beer-catching label or an eye-catching beer label, how people, if they were to drink this beer, would they actually think about these kind of questions? Or do people not think about that when they drink a beer? I mean, there's a lot of diversity and ideas that are out there when it comes to uh, what people do when they want to come up with a name for a beer or a wine or anything like that. But I think it also reflects on the diversity of the craft brewing industry, which I think is a wonderful thing that we should be celebrating. To your point, I'll also say this, like none of the beverages that we have sampled um, today, like I would be like, oh yeah, like without looking at the label, the bottle, whatever, I would not be like, oh yeah, this is like an atomic, like influence beer. Like there's nothing about those that say that. So, I mean, 
to a certain extent, um, the bottling, the labeling, it's all marketing. It's a market ploy. You try to figure out how your product will can you know uh, take advantage to the full extent of that category. And I think as we said, like some of the brewers are trying to pay homage to certain things, but I think the reality is like, you know, a lot of people are just, yeah, trying to take advantage of what's cool, what's sexy, what hasn't been used, right? Like to your point, you know, everything's been played out. What hasn't been played out yet? Gabe, when you go to select a beer, do you look at style or do you look at label? Because it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, you got a style you're looking for, but there's so many labels out there, at least in the eye-catching when you're walking down the grocery aisle or when you're in Total Wine, you're not having like me call you asking for the latest atomic beer or wine. Yeah, no, I, I look at both. Um, I mean, it's kind of the style is like what I'm in the mood for, what I'm in the mood to drink, and the label kind of helps narrow it down. I think for nuclear theme, I mean, it's a, I think nuclear weapons are seen as something that's like hardcore, extreme, that kind of thing. And so if you put that on your label, it's going to get people excited about it and make it make you stand out for doing something that's really like intense or extreme and for people looking for that kind of thing it probably works yeah if you're a craft beer aficionado the style of the beer the aspects that go into it matter but if it's something and i'm this type of person where every time i'm out there shopping for beer i'm usually trying to find something i haven't had before Mm. and if you're at a place that has a lot of beers you need something to draw you in to read the case or read the bottle i think that's what a lot of these uh, companies might be doing yeah, and I, I will say this, like, um, you know, in the play that field, nuclear is still pretty rare, right? Like, if you're a Total Wine and you spot a beer that's like, oh, it's we have something to do with, like, the atmospheric tests or, like, we're paying homage to this, like, you're probably going to be the only beer in that Total Wine, right? right? Like, there are other beers in the field, but you're going to stand out in the selection. And if you have a catchy label, um, like the... Um, smash bomb atomic ipa does that may be enough right that's that's it you're done so i think you know kind of based on what the what the label says tells you where you want to put your wallet uh and kind of where you want to try for your next beer but if people are listening to this podcast and want to kind of decide what the next thing they're going to read or listen to uh i got a spot here where maybe we want to discuss some recommendations so i've got some recommendations maybe some of my podcast uh host here co-host here Maybe have some things they want to recommend, but I have three things. Uh, one, I would check out Alex Wellerstein's article that I mentioned earlier, Beer and the Apocalypse, on his blog called Restricted Data from 2012. It's got some really interesting things about uh, people testing uh, atomic weapons near beer and you know seeing what happens, whether or not you can still drink it. I would recommend an article in Drunkard Magazine called, uh, called Boozing with the Bomb, Alcohol in the Atomic Age by Frank Kelly Rich. It's a fun piece on the role of alcohol throughout atomic history, and it was a source for a lot of the kind of random facts of the things we threw out today's in today's episode. I read and, that. Uh, and finally, I would recommend a, a beautiful book called The Complete Joy of Home Brewing by Charlie Papazian, who is pretty much uh, has written everything you need to know about how to home brew at home, brew beer at home, and from start to finish. It's a really cool book. It's not just recipes and techniques, but you really kind of get what uh, is involved in home brewing, which is a fun mix of people who are really interested in biology and chemistry and in yeast manufacturing or people who are just excited about making beer at a volume where it's cheaper for their own house or experimenting like I am and coming up with weird names, which is 
pun names are pretty much the half the reason why I make beer at all. Anyone else have anything they want to recommend for people to listen to or maybe even beers to try out that uh, would be kind of similar to what we talked about today? I just want to say that puns are the greatest thing of all time. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for coming on the podcast today. Uh, it was kind of a tough commute because there were a lot of protests and rallies and various things near the White House this weekend. We battled through Nazis to get here. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, I hope the beer selection was enough to justify that. So I appreciate everybody coming on. Uh, for those who want to talk about maybe places where they can find their research or their writing, maybe their Twitter handle, I'll start with Will. Uh, Will, Will, can people find this wonderful pr- Twitter personality you've already previewed earlier today? Where can people find this at? It's real complicated, guys. It's at Will Satron. How would you spell that? At W-I-L-L-S-A-E. T-R-E-N. It's like Satan with an R. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Eric, uh, maybe people will be hearing from you because you'll be on the future episode of the podcast. We'll get you on. You know, we, it was kind of your idea to do this Atomic Beer episode. Uh, we talked about doing it because uh, New Belgium has this voodoo uh, ranger atomic pumpkin beer that I couldn't find because it was probably going to come out in a month or so because it's not Oktoberfest just yet. But I'm sure we'll have you on at some point again for a future episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. And if I can also throw out my Twitter handle, it's just as complicated as Will's. It's at Eric, E-R-I-C, Gasho, G-A-S-C-H-O. If you're really interested in healthcare policy and the Los Angeles Dodgers, check out my Twitter (laughs) handle. No one probably cares. But thank you so much for having me, Tim. Excellent. Uh, Well, Gabe, people will probably hear from you on future episodes of the Supercritical Podcast. Thanks as always, Tim. drink that you don't pour. Now when you take one sip, you won't need any more. You're small as a beetle, a big as a wheel. Boom. Atomic cocktail. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, either nuke history-wise or maybe you didn't like our opinions of some of the beers that we had here. Uh, you can contact the show through our website, supercriticalpodcast.com. You can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast and email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Gabe and Will and Eric. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive and beer and beer, or <laughs> We're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Push a button, turn a dial. Your work is done for miles and miles. When it hits, bound to shake. Because it feels like an earthquake. That's the drink that you don't pour. Now when you take one sip, you won't need any more. If you're small as a beetle, a big as a whale, atomic cocktail.